Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very unique and unusual episode of Sequelizers. We're not fixing the bad sequels to good movies this time, but I am still your host, Jack Chambers, and I'm joined by a colourful cast of characters, as always, my fellow Sequelizers, and a new person that we'll get into later on. First of all, Mr. Stuart Ashen. Hello. Hello. Shall we mention the nice new music as well? We should. We should. As you've already been... Orderly treated, dear <laughs> listeners. Daniel Williams has upgraded us. So thanks, Dan Williams. It's awesome. Speaking of awesome, Alec Plowman, how are you? Yo, hello, internet listening friends. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Can you tell oh, who's podcast cancelled? cancelled. <laughs> They're not going to be your mates, Muscle. Uh, unfriend. Speaking of internet friends, Matthew Stogden, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm all right. Good. And hello, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, didn't hello, listeners. Hello. I just didn't see you there. God, you brought, you brought your sequelizers cheer <laughs> on this episode, you grim bastard. It's January. It's appropriately sequelizery because it's like highest like suicide rates this month, isn't it? So, hold on a minute. What? Jesus it's appropriately sequelizery because of suicide? <laughs> what? I'm making the theme appropriate for January. Okay, okay. Been a bit sullen. Everyone's credit card's bill due thanks for Christmas. I mean, uh, January... Star Wars turned out to be terrible, as we all know. Uh, uh, Jan- we're not recording this not... in January. <laughs> <laughs> January is kind of it's like the bad right. sequel to December. It's the bit where everything kind of goes a bit wrong. Ah. To be fair, yeah. And suicide. Yeah. There we go. I'm, not, I'm creating a Those wise words are coming from the mouth of Mr. Tom Martin. They are indeed. Hello, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to leave it there. Silence. <laughs> what? They, you're In not there? Radio. Oh, oh, God. I hope I hope people would just shout. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm assuming people would just be going, "Hey, their... Tom, how's it going?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, I'm fine." Thanks. Throwing their pants at their smartphones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm... I mean, I hope so. Not unlike the woman folk would with Tom Jones back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell Alex Welsh, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah. <laughs> what? Because he said woman folk. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, January. and adding to the usual quintet of sequelizers our latest edition mr tim matum welcome to the show thank you very much i'm i'm proud to make this a sextet Um, (laughs) uh, felt appropriate yes Yes. already he fits in it's already a sexy sextet (laughs) already he fits in is the worst (laughs) called sextet is that the bad sequel to it follows yeah um, this episode of sequelizers we are pitching a sequelizers porn and that was it (laughs) enjoy Uh, sextet colon he fits right in the, the, the premise I've just got one word down here it just says orgy ah. so um, and what themes will classic. we be exploring Stuart? well <laughs> I'll be telling you after the watershed uh, fluffing provided by Peter Frampton oh, hey. there we go it's there in we go. solid gold mm. oh dear so the listeners might be wondering the fuck's Why, going on? Yeah, what the hell's going on? Why is there suddenly six of us? Yeah. And uh, I guess I'll let Tom oh, is it tell the story. Oh, down to me? Yeah, uh, I yeah. Guess it is. Well, once upon a time... No, basically, unfortunately, listeners, uh, I- I'm-, I'm leaving you all. Life has, uh, life has taken me away from the very fine, beautiful city of Norwich. Uh, I met a very nice lady 
and uh, she asked me to come and live with her in a town, or rather a city called Birmingham. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> hold on a minute, you can uh, you can Just earn Birmingham. Moment so, yeah. You came uh, back without a Birmingham accent, so yeah, yeah. I've come. I've, I've been living there two weeks now, and I've not got a Birmingham accent, which is good. You failed us. Yeah. I'm, I'm as Bob Hoskins as ever. We were so, hoping to uh, be. Do people in Birmingham mistake you for Bob Hoskins? Yeah, <laughs> it's been a, it has been a bit. It has been a bit of an awkward misconception. I've been in, introducing myself to my new colleagues, and they've just been going. Oh, I, I mean, Bob, Bob, like we, we thought, thought you were dead. dead. <laughs> um, no, people, so, we, we loved you in Super Mario Bros. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're looking Said really slim. Like, you're looking really slim and much Death more alive. Death will do that to you. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, no, so 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 basically, it was a it was a very Have easy you... decision to make to move, but also a very hard one because amongst the things I've had to to give up is uh, is is obviously sequelizers because unfortunately, uh, the you know little behind the scenes look into the way that podcasts are recorded, we record on quite a regular schedule. It is really sad because yeah. I've, I've really, really, yeah. I've really, really enjoyed doing this, and and had it were it not for the for the, for the love of a good woman, I would very much be continuing uh, my sequelizing endeavours. But you know, I think I've had to I had to make the decision, and, uh, and and a very good decision it has been. And uh, but I, I have had to say goodbye, and I'm a little bit sad. I'm not going to cry, but I'm, I'm a little, you know, a little bit sad. And but yeah, so hopefully, and you know, what we thought was basically, um, obviously, you're all used to you know Tom Martin. So what basically our, <laughs> our, our our major criteria for searching for a replacement was someone that had the same initial. So we've got Tim Matum. So hopefully, you know, Jack won't have to do too much editing. Uh, you know, changing a few syllables, and also Tim's really great and. One my good friends so he's gonna take over the the mantle of the street sharks it also might mean that we can finally put street sharks street sharks are gone no no street sharks, <laughs> finally, it would be it would be finally, wrong it'd be wrong, it'd be wrong. To, to to desecrate your your time my legacy. Uh, by, by just yeah. and also it'd be wrong to tim just say here you're one of this now we have to just draw a line you've been desecrating all of our time with that. hey, hey, hey Alec, if any I, we, I, tom and i would have given up long ago if it wasn't for you your encouraging us like your reaction your fucking ha- face. Is, is yeah is that so it's so always yeah. like oh so so yeah a bit of sweet one um I, and yeah you know and and hopefully i'll be back again at some point in the future and i um i you know tim will i'd leave the the my seat in sequelizers to the very capable hands and very capable bum cheeks of Tim Mayfield. <laughs> well, I, I I only hope I can yes live up to the high standard uh, that you have set. Um, I've been a big fan listening uh, for the past two seasons um, and really enjoying all the work you guys have done. So I can only hope that I can you know contribute in some fashion and hopefully bring bring some good ideas along. Um, and you yes. said sextet, mate. You're in. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's, it's done. You had me at sextet. You had me at sextet. Yeah. You so, in, in sextet. summary, listeners, I say to Martin, you say to Matum. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to point out that joke was so good. I did have to work on it with Mr. Stogden. That was a twofer. <laughs> we rehearsed that. So there we are. So, so what are we doing here today? Yeah, yeah. as I said, we're not actually fixing any bad sequels to good movies this time, which is unusual for us. We've only mm. done this once before. It's kind of a mid-season. Extra special Palette episode. Cleanser. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Usually we're talking about films we would never recommend our listeners watch in a million years. Mm. I know some listeners are like, oh, I went to watch Exorcist 2 because of you guys. It wasn't that bad. I'm like, you're wrong. You're a massive <laughs> Every film, pretty much, apart from a couple of them. We, we had a lot of those with Revenge of the Creature. And Weirdly most enough, of the yeah. arguments were just, well, it's old, so therefore we have to say it's good. A lot of them was, <laughs> my, my, my dad is on his deathbed and he swears that Revenge of the Creature is still good. <laughs> what you need to do is take a pill and <laughs> <that> <laughs> he's too far gone. You need to put him out of his misery. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we're actually going to be talking about 
good sequels hey, this time. Yeah. Hey. Films we can recommend to listeners, maybe some that you haven't seen. I'm sure you've seen probably most, most of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They are yeah. a fine crop of sequels. Exactly. Mm. We're going to go kind of round the table. You're going to learn a little bit more about Tim and his taste and learn a bit about more of our tastes because we don't really go that much into it in the show. No. We've just kind of learn about what to hate and how to fix things. We don't really talk about that much mm, what, what we love and what our, some of our favourite films are. What to hate and how to fix things. That's like a terrible <laughs> self-help. <laughs> step, step one, purchase yourself a gun. Yeah. <laughs> step two, um, look, purchase a mirror, look into it, and use step one. Chapter, <laughs> chapter one, going postal. <laughs> so why don't we kick things off? With the fantastic sequel from Mr. Alec Plowman. Oh, why don't we start with you, sir? Do it. So yeah, I'm gonna uh, one of my all-time favorite sequels. Uh, People may have gotten the impression from the season one finale (laughs) that I like the Aliens franchise. Really, a bit. I don't believe you. And Hawks. Yeah, but never the two at the same time. Are you talking Um, about Kez too? Kez to Cruise Control. <laughs> <laughs> Cruise Control. <laughs> Cruise I think Kez, Kez Control. control. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Always fuck up you, those play on words. You take two. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. So yeah, I'm going to go with um, Aliens, the 1986 sequel to, to Alien, obviously, the Ridley Scott film. One of my all-time favourite sequels. I remember watching Alien and loving it when I was about 11. And then... Watching all of the other ones in quick succession and Aliens in particular being a a bit of a revelation for me in terms of here is how you make a sequel. That sense that it set the bar pretty high for me at the time as to what a second film could be. It's a common thing of the everybody said, "Oh, it's the Aliens to Alien." Like it's the comparison everybody makes. It set the the standard for so many sequels going forward of making it bigger and more bombastic and yeah. That's kind of the aim for a lot of filmmakers when they make sequels. Like, oh, I'm, make, I'm doing the Aliens of Avatar. Like, shut up, James Cameron. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah. No, you're not. So, so, I mean, to um, to yeah, basically to to elaborate a bit on what you're saying there, it, the original Alien is it's a very claustrophobic. It's a mm. horror movie, and it is a Alien singular. Mm-hmm. It is <clears throat> it is seven people trapped on a ship, six people trapped on a ship with this one alien guy that is killing people. And- <laughs> Guy. Worst yeah. summary of Six people it's not, and an alien it's, guy. It's, it's, not, on a it's ship, not really that bad. Hijinks ensue. Yeah, so okay. Six people on a ship being terrorized by a uh, hideous xenomorph creature. There we go. Um, yeah. Horror, terror, suspense ensues. It's quite a slow burning movie, though. Um, and Aliens really ups the ante by. Uh, throwing loads of aliens into the mix. It becomes much more of an action movie. Um, there's never a, We are led to believe, through clever editing, that there are hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of aliens on the, the planet, but there's actually never more than six on screen at any one time. Interesting. Um, yeah. That's just because of budget and things at the time, but it's very cleverly edited to, to give the impression otherwise. And I think Aliens works, because it does up the ante, but it... And I, which people talk about a lot. When people talk about aliens, they talk about it upping the ante. The, uh, but the thing that people don't pick up on, and why people often get it wrong when they try and emulate aliens, because mm. lots of people try and make an aliens sequel and make it badly, is aliens didn't just up the ante, it also changed the rules. Yeah. And mm. it changes the rules in an interesting enough way um, 
to make it sustain a second movie, to make you care about the characters. So one of the first ways it does that is it turns it into a, a war movie. It throws in a load of Marines who face off against the aliens, and it becomes an almost Vietnam allegory. Mm. Uh, this group of stocked, armed, armed to the teeth, hardcore Marines go in and get their asses handed to them by this unknown foe that comes out of the out of the walls. And that adds in an element to it, it's something really different. It builds tension in a completely different way. So you still get all of that tension from the first film, but it feels completely fresh because it's using different tropes. Yeah. Um, the other thing that it does very well, I think, is character development, particularly of uh, Ellen Ripley. I think it takes the protagonist into a different place. It makes Ripley a softer protagonist than she is, while still being a fairly hard character it softens her enough to make us as the audience much more empathetic towards her and her situation we find out that she had a daughter she starts the movie frozen in deep space having escaped from the events of the first movie and we discover that she's been floating for around 60 years so the revelation then comes during the course of the movie that her daughter has died in the time that she was in yeah. stasis, which adds a lot of emotional resonance. And then there is a one of the key plot points is that she becomes a sort of surrogate mother to the sole survivor on this alien-infested planet who is a nine-year-old girl. And I think that that creates an interesting dynamic. It does something different. And I think bringing the personal to a character to move them forward is... Something that gets overlooked in sequels when it's all about upping the ante, but the idea of that character development, I think, is really important. I think that's something Aliens does really well. I think that that's something um, that all good sequels are having. Sort of, well, I'll sort of touch on this when it comes to talk about. What I'm going to talk about, but like actually having sat down and thought about it, like character development uh, is such a huge part of uh, of what makes good sequels good sequels. Because I think a lot of people kind of fall back on that thing of like, as you were saying, like more just sequels should be the same for the film, but more so. But it's like. And it often falls that there's more explosions, there's more action scenes, there's, there's you know, looking at something like Transformers, there's more of all of the things that ostensibly made people interested in the first place. But actually, if you don't get into the, you know, if you don't actually get deeper into character development and why, because ultimately we're, in any film you're spending time with characters and if you don't actually give people a, 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 a reason to, to actually want to spend time with those characters, then... Then they won't, and I think that's where a lot of bad sequels fall down. And stuff like, uh, you know, Aliens does a great job of it. And um, you know, I'm going to come and talk about Empire Strikes Back later. That does a really, really good job of, of actually digging much deeper into the interpersonal relationships between those characters and and fleshing those out. It's interesting when we talk about the daughter as well, because effectively, first things first to establish is that there are. I can't think of anyone in particular I've ever met in my life who doesn't like or in some way respect Aliens. Mm. There's almost it's such a hard film to either critically or on an on an entertainment level bash because it is so very well made and things like oh we're going to say she's got a daughter and who's now dead uh, whether i don't think uh, for memory serves there's nothing in alien that really alludes to the fact that ripley has any sort of life on earth or anything outside of the nostromo and that kind of stuff usually feels cheap or forced or a bit obvious but again in aliens it just plays off very naturally i think it's a combination of just Subtle scripting and exceptionally good acting. Yeah. Um, it's literally the idea that, no, no, when Ellen's on the job, she's on the job and that's it. Now she's home and she's found this horrible news. And I can completely understand that. Also, because let's face it, at the end of the day, she doesn't need to talk about her 
daughter in a survivalistic mindset, unless it's like a World War Two film and you're on a beach saying, "Oh, I miss my kids," and the bullets. <laughs> <laughs> There's no reason to bring that in there. Um, but no, yeah, Aliens. As I say, it's, 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 it, it does a lot of things. In a similar way, it introduces so many characters as well that you don't know and you're not familiar with, and they're all very bombastic personalities. It shouldn't work. And it, it's been, as you say, it's, people try to emulate it and fail hideously because they just think, oh, it's clearly just a lot of big personalities. Some stuff you didn't know from the first film was actually this instead, and there's lots more of it going on. And everyone just falls apart it's, with that because it's poor execution. It's also a, an incredibly <coughs> economical film, which I think people mm. often forget as well. It's really, there are two cuts there's a director's cut. And there's the original cut. The director's cut's about half an hour longer, but both feel really tight in both versions. But especially the theatrical release, which runs to about two hours long, mm. it is a lean, mean movie, and not a frame is wasted. Really, yeah. it yeah. just in terms of which James Cameron in his early filmmaking <laughs> yeah. days mm. was really deft at, at doing. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, we talk about, you know, Aliens as this kind of classic idea of, you know, for a sequel, everything ramps up. And there's a great and and probably apocryphal story that I've heard, which is that uh, when James Cameron was coming in to kind of pitch it uh, to a room full of executives, he went up to a, a, a a whiteboard or a blackboard or something, wrote Alien on it. And then added an S after it, and then drew two lines through it to turn it into a dollar sign. Um, Fucking but, James Cameron, yeah, which is which does strike me as very James Cameron. But I think you know, like you're saying, it, it isn't just more bombast because then you do get that empty spectacle Transformers kind of effect. It actually mm. does. It kind of goes back to look at you know what worked about the original and and recontextualize it in a different way that sense of claustrophobia okay but let's make it a vietnam war film rather than a than a kind mm. of haunted house almost horror yeah. yeah one of my favorite things about aliens is that it's a rare example of all the characters effectively losing because of overwhelming odds that they can't beat and not through their own stupidity or doing <laughs> things really badly the idea is there are a load of professionals in a situation they should be able to deal with but they can't because there's too much stuff and that's how it plays out with the notable exception of burke who has his own agenda all the marines go in they do everything to the best of their ability but they cannot win just because that is the situation there are just too damn many of these aliens that are too damn strong Compare and contrast with Prometheus. (laughs) I also think it does a thing that a lot of good sequels don't do where, you know, you you have the first film that obviously you're interested in and it sets up a universe and it expands the universe in a really consistent, really interesting and really kind of um, sort of kind of addictive way in that it's like, oh, that's, you know, the the first alien sets up, does that kind of thing that the first Star Wars does where you just throws you into a universe. It's like, well, we don't need to explain the fact that this is basically a massive space truck, but this exists and there is this language, you know, there's 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 signs in the Wayland Yutani Corporation. We don't really ex- explain much about it, but there's enough sketched out that you, you're kind of, oh, I'm interested in that universe. And what Aliens does is then just goes, oh, no, there's actually a, there's a whole, you know, there's there would naturally be a, a Marine Corps, but obviously they are a space Marine Corps. So we're going to flesh out a little bit of that, but we're not going to do everything, but there's clearly a lot of thought being put into that backstory of you know there's that great line where i'm gonna get it wrong but where he talks about you know um was it alec you'll know better but like sonic you know the ball breakers and all the rest of it, and, and like talking about all the weapons they have at their disposal and, and it, sharp it, sticks yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> and it's just that thing of you know they, they all of the, the the design of that and it, it just it just deepens that universe but without spending too much as you said it's a lean film it doesn't spend too much narrative time doing that but it again it makes it, it it's that more so but done in a really 
sensible, interesting um, sort of you know way that actually that, that builds on the universe. Um, better world building than we have yeah, now. And it's yeah. a really lived in world. Yes, it feels like. well, it, and it's something that's been copied. You know, basically, Halo oh, is 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 aliens, and well, pretty much all military science fiction owes pretty much everything yeah, to that. It's film. interesting you should say that because this is Aliens is one of those weird films that I think people don't fully recognize the impact of it because it has become such a cliche or don't recognize how revolutionary that was when it first came out because as you said basically every vaguely sci-fi related first person shooter video game owes a huge debt to mm-hmm. I mean Doom especially for ex- Colonial Marines <laughs> yes. oh god um, Doom for example was meant to be an Aliens game that was mm-hmm. what they were pitching it as until relatively late in the process I think I could be wrong there Stuart. <laughs> Stuart. that is my understanding yes I don't yeah. know what happened at the end there presumably license cost too much yeah. or the license holder just went no <laughs> so uh, we ended up with all the evil demons and hell stuff demon from Mars and shit mm. like that yeah. it's also how a lot of people think when they're writing scripts for films of this nature and also it's like almost all video games the the quotes for, as you say, for a two-hour film, if you look at the entire script, people draw on it and and emulate it and pastiche it and parody it so much, and it's such it's such an ingrained thing now in in the it's almost um, in terms of the cultural footprint is concerned, it almost loses the origin. People think, oh, there's a line. It's like, mm. yeah, it's from Aliens. No, no, it's from something else before. No, no, you first heard that in Aliens, yeah. and it's been in everything else since. But yeah, basically, to sum up, it gets upping the ante, right. By giving you more, by giving you something different, and by giving you a lot more character in a really considered, economical, but also exciting way. Stuart, what's the sequel that you like? Well... Regale us with your tales of wonder. It is 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Classic. Good choice. A second sequel, of course, after... Well, kind of, because isn't Mm. technically Temple of Doom a prequel? Yeah, Temple of Doom is a prequel. Which is an odd one. Really? Because it's one of those things that I'm sure it says at the start, but it never quite, when I was younger, certainly, never it, quite lodged in my head. It gives you the date, uh, and that's that's the only inkling that it has. It, it bears yeah. no relevance on the story that yeah. takes place before or after. That's uh, precisely, because yeah. there's no elements that go forth and back. In mm. fact, it's kind of odd that there aren't, because where's Short Round gone? Mm. Did he dead? <laughs> and, you know, what happened to <laughs> Willie and all the rest? We don't have a clue. But, yeah, um, it's last... I mean... It's not a great film, is it, Temple of Doom? It's one of those ones, there's a lot of iconic imagery in it and set pieces. When you go back to watch it again, you're like, oh, a lot of this doesn't quite work. Mm. I'm actually, I'm a Temple Defender. I'm, I'm, uh, Get out. would be. Yeah, mm. like my, my favourite Indiana Jones film. Which oh, is, what? Yeah. Get the fuck Come out right on. now. Oh, you enjoy yeah. Temple of Doom. You, it yeah. can't be your favourite film. No, no. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's basically Jones George film. Lucas yeah. and Steven Spielberg working to, through the fact that they both had terrible divorces. I mean, yes. it's, and it's it, great. It's, it's great. literally, it's, I mean, it's as literal as we got stabbed in the heart by real women, so we're going to stab a heart with a knife, and that's metaphor. <laughs> Better be uh, Indians and it'll no one think yeah. it's us. It's yeah, exactly. It's it's a little I don't know. It's my least favourite of all of them. Yes. Oh, well, actually, no, to be fair. No, 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 I was gonna say, let me just clarify that. Oh, my least favourite of, of the three that exist. The three that exist, yeah. Because that yeah, other one absolutely. just is, is. it shall not be named. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, but it's not about young indie there, of course. <laughs> no. oh, fucking no. young indie's great. Don't dish young yes. indie. <laughs> Isn't there a scene in Young Indie where they show an old indie? who just yes. kills people by playing a flute, which causes yes. some it's, snow to fall on them. Yes. The saxophone yes. jazz one, isn't it? Or something it ridiculous? Is, yes. 
Yep. Christ. There's also uh, there's just so many amazing episodes. The one where he gets with like ma- ma- every famous person, every famous person he gets with is amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the second one of them is not a failure, but it's not. It, it didn't just have that kind of uh, quality to it that Raiders of the Lost Ark did. Because I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark really was a game changer in mm. the sense that this is a big action film that's fun, and you like the characters, yeah, and yeah. it just keeps going and going with the action and stuff happening. <clears throat> and at the time. That was pretty revolutionary. So we come around to the third one, The Last Crusade, which is, um, well, it's not in the sense that it couldn't work if there weren't the two sequels before it, I think, because Indy mm. is quite a thin character up until Last Crusade, and you need to have spent time with him to sort of uh, like him and care what happens to him, etc. And then in Last Crusade, of course, we get the big character moments where you meet his dad and you see what his uh, youth was like, and then he makes up with his dad. Mm-hmm. Spoilers, if you haven't seen it, I've ruined it for you now. <laughs> they do some interesting stuff with um, the love interest, who is effectively also a villain and is conflicted. Yeah. And every time you've got plenty of escalation, even in the sense of what they're after, the first time the Ark of the Covenant is quite a big thing if you know your Bible, you know what I mean? But the Holy Grail, they're, li- they're literally after the Holy Grail. <laughs> you know, Chasing the Holy, Holy Grail, Grail is yes. a phrase. Yeah, 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 yeah it, exactly. Yep. Indy's dad, his Holy Grail is the Holy Grail. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no messing around it, you're straight in. And you're back with the Judeo-Christian stuff thereafter as well. It was in the second one, the Sankara Stones, was it? Which yeah. I don't think are even yeah. a thing. Mm. So I, I think, think it's you... based on Hindu, but it's not actually it's, a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not like an existing... Based on a true story, like a lifetime movie yeah. or mm. something. Um, yeah, it's nice to get back <laughs> into the sort of world that uh, we understand in that. And yeah, by the fleshing out, you end up caring about it more. And it's really fun to see his interaction with his dad and how the respect comes back in, um, which is, I think, acted brilliantly by both of them. Connery being inexplicably Scottish, because, you know, it's Sean Connery and he doesn't do accents. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise this piece. Like, I thought you were one of them. It's like, yeah. is that meant to be an American accent? I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just Sean Connery. Also, All you're overlooking the fact that it has Nazis in it again, which seemingly is part... It ha- oh, you oh, it has to yeah. have Nazis in it. From Nazis to Hitler. That's, yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, we're going on the big loop back to the first one again in that. But, uh, and there's still great set pieces in it. A lot of great set pieces. The intro is fantastic, okay. um, where you do see a young indie played by River Phoenix. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what sort of got him into the business of saying things should be in museums. Yeah. And then nicking them. And then hopefully giving him to the museums. I think that's implied. Uh, just to jump in very quickly, um, I believe that in the script originally, the man who's just known as Panama Hatman or yes. whatever is actually meant to be Abner Ravenwood, Marion Ravenwood's dad. Oh, oh I never knew that. Yeah, but again, it's it's um, obviously been just changed out and not a thing in the th- in the actual mm. uh, film. But in the script, I think it was initially supposed to be that initially because I. It sort of makes sense because when he sees him at the end, he pays him off with a cross of whatever the hell it is, sort of gives him the hat. It's, it's that passing thing. And I, I it, just the fact that it's, again, the, like, the world-building mindset is there if you need it to be. Fuck you, young Indiana Jones. And it's nice, but yeah, sorry, just jumping on that random little, little tip. Entirely true. Um, and, of course, every indie film is kind of based on a slightly different era of sort of pulp fiction in the sense. Not the Tarantino film, but the <laughs> genre. So, like, the 20s is um, radio adventures are kind of what kicked yes. off um, <clears throat> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then the 30s, uh, you've got your cinema serials and your pulp magazines and things, which led to the sort of lurid details of hearts being ripped out and crushed yeah. by mm. strange foreign people and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> Whereas um, by the time we got to Last Crusade, it's onto the epic movies of the 40s, which is why everything has this sort of greater feel and scope to it. Mm. Um, and of course, 50s, 
um, when unfortunately the movie that shall not be named was produced, uh, yeah. um, sci-fi. So you've got your flying yeah. saucer. I mean, that makes sense. It's it just I'm, I'm the execution of, of it we will not go into here. I'm kind of intrigued to see what they're going to do with five, whether it's going to shift to 60s or maybe 80s. Or like Why the fuck is five stuff yeah. But it, that's my only interest is to see how they make that work. Because if they, you know, they could I bet work. they won't make it work. But <laughs> they'll, they'll just show it anyway. Indiana Jones, The Graduate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll be a spin-off of those CGI um, meerkat things at the start. Oh. It'd be like seeing a very old, bl- half-blind cat walking in front of a truck. I know what's coming. I don't want to oh. see it. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch, but Harrison I don't Ford's want just on a mission to kill off all his iconic characters. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He's like a miserable bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. He seems to be on a mission to kill himself as well through <laughs> yeah, Millennium yes. Falcons and plane, plane crashes. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of other stuff. Just to, again, jump in for a second. Have you guys seen the original pictures for what Last Crusade could and should have been, where George Lucas was dictating to Chris Columbus um, on one of his first big writing jobs? And it was like they were going to have the Grail in Scotland. This is before Connery was involved in that at all. And it was also about a story of them going to Africa to find the Monkey King. And it's like, no, this is... <laughs> no. Yeah. And they all blame sort of Chris Columbus for the whole thing. And he's, I think he sort of swore at that point, never again will I go against my instinct and listen to someone else just because I respect them as, an, as, a, as a person, as a, as a wow. director. Um, and there's lots of other little stories. There's like the first version. And there's a second version which has like a, 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 like a father element or something like that that's meant to you know, tie into what we're sort of familiar with. Oh, no, it's the, I think it's the Elsa Schneider-esque kind of role to it. So there were bits and pieces that became Last Crusade. But originally it was more down the line of like, Temple of Doom at its worst, basically, mm. being heightened. And I think it was like Indiana Jones and the Monkey King or something. Yeah, it was. Oh. And that's the issue you have with George Lucas coming up with the ideas and Steven Spielberg directing, and that yeah. reached its peak with the fourth one, where it was a terrible mm. idea, well directed, but a terrible idea. Who, yeah, who'd have thought that George Lucas would be involved in something with uncomfortable <laughs> racial stereotypes? <laughs> ah, <laughs> Christ, I know. It's never happened before, never happened again. Wait <laughs> a second. <laughs> But yeah, the um, blending of the sort of action and the emotional scenes in uh, Last Crusade, I always found very, very uh, useful in my own writing. It's something I come back to and think about a lot. Um, If my next film does actually get produced, you will see various homages in that. Um, But yeah, and also lovely ending really lovely yeah. ending mm. where yeah. they yeah. literally ride off into the sunset for further adventures like the end of Calvin and Hobbes where they're all you know, <laughs> it's yeah. a wonderful world Keyword. old buddy let's go explore. ending and there was no yeah. more sequels after that the yeah. end yeah <laughs> and yes let's end that there yeah. like they should have <laughs> Tim over to you Right, so my selection is X-Men 2, a.k.a. X2, a.k.a. X2 X-Men United, depending on (laughs) what poster you looked at at what particular period of time. It wasn't Uh, uh, X2 United in the UK because it sounds like a football team. Yes, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was the... I'm like Exeter United. Uh, So yeah, so that came out uh, in 2003, directed by, uh, unfortunately, Brian Singer, who uh, probably Mm. by the time this episode comes out has got even more trouble. Is prison somewhere? Yeah, Yeah. probably facing some charges, unfortunately, but nonetheless directed, I think, a very good film here. Obviously, superhero genre, uh, but quite early in terms of the kind of the modern superhero renaissance that kind of got kicked off with Blade. And... I think, you know, in terms of what this does right as a sequel, I think it it expands the cast, you know, quite dramatically in terms of 
everybody who was in the first one gets, or more or less everyone who was in the first one gets a lot more to do. Uh, it introduces several new characters, and it manages to balance that quite substantial <coughs> cast incredibly well. Almost everyone has a consistent arc that you can follow through the movie that makes emotional sense mm-hmm. while still having, you know, an interesting plot and lots of action set pieces going on. Um, you know, right down to characters like Pyro, who, you know, is, you know, I think he shows up for about 12 seconds in the first film. And yeah. they actually, you know, they give him character, they give him a story arc that he follows through, um, you know, and and I think just the the skill with which, you know, the screenplay and the film manages to balance all those different elements flying around. You know, Cyclops gets a bit of short shrift as he has in all of the films. <laughs> but uh, other than that, it manages a really deft balancing act uh, to to keep everyone kind of moving through uh, in different plot elements and, uh, and, and make for a really entertaining film. I think balancing that ensemble cast is kind of where we're at now with all this Justice League stuff and Avengers stuff. It's mm. become such a staple of everything's building to a huge ensemble piece mm. for every superhero thing. And that was the first one that kind of got it right in the modern era. Like you mm. said, Tim, mm. it was kicked off with Blade, but that was kind of a smaller thing. A lot of people didn't even know that was a comic. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. people still don't. We're probably... <laughs> yes, people are going, hold Someone's pausing again. Oh my God, this Blade was a comic? Blade is owned by Marvel, everybody. <laughs> yep. He might show up in the Avengers sometime. <laughs> yep. Or in the Netflix out. show. If he gets a Netflix show, I'm on board. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Me too. Uh, me three. <laughs> X2 was like one of the first times they really got that ensemble cast of superhero stuff right. And it mm-hmm. felt like, like you said, Tim, they really balanced it really well and everybody got their moments. It's also a great adaptation. Mm. It's yes. it's one of the... It's interesting. I think it is one of the best sort of direct adaptations of a particular comic mm. that has ever been done as a, um, as a film for me. Yeah. Because a lot of adaptations tend to be amalgamations of lots of different books mm. put together. This one, very specifically, they went, we're doing uh, God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah. Which is a bold choice for a second film as well. Yeah. And they do it really well. That's the thing I like about it as well, because you could have cocked that up spectacularly, Mm. adapting that book. It's very... It's one of those things where if you can get it right, it's something that to me is the essence of what X-Men comics are, Mm. that book. The essence of what X-Men comics are at their best. And they did a really stellar job of committing that to screen. So I think it's a great, not just a great sequel, but a great adaptation. And as you said, a great way to build depth into Mm. those characters, to Mm. build backstory and to do that in a meaningful and interesting way. I remember coming out of the cinema, having watched that, and really feeling blown away by that movie in a way that I hadn't done by a superhero movie at that point. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, and um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I've been an X Men fan basically as long as I've been alive, and and I hadn't actually read God Loves Man Kills. I, I was aware of it as a story and kind of rough, you know, themes and stuff that were going on. And reading it after the fact, I was amazed at how much had actually been carried over well, in, in I, terms. Because I had I had just read God Loves Man Kills at that point. I think that was like my gateway drug into X Men comics, and I remember being amazed at it being something that was so faithful because mm. after having had Tim Burton Batman movies which are not at all faithful yeah. to the comics and I was a big Batman fan by this point and liked those films but realised they had very little to do with the character it was like mm. whoa this feels really different this feels reverential in a way that other things have never yeah. been before and, and the things that it changes are appropriate they don't feel you know they feel kind of thematically 
suitable and they don't feel like they've been changed, you know, just because they, they all kind of make sense to keep it, you know, relatively grounded in, in that universe. This is something, a bit of an aside, but this is something I kind of miss with um, superhero movies these days because superhero movies now are incredibly reverential. But as you said, it's reverential yet grounded. I felt like it's part of the reason it works so well as an adaptation is it does adapt it. Mm. It makes it, you know, I mean, people laugh now at the X-Men leather suits and how Mm. silly they seem, but it was a, we are adapting this for film to make this feel like it's credible grounded world in and 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 they they kind of they're aware that they've got that history of comic books to dip into so they bring yeah. in stuff from weapon x and you know all these other storylines that have been in the comics you know to to yeah. make it that richer film the thing i find quite interesting as well is we're talking about you know how films do things today and such like that but one thing that's sort of overlooked uh, with any film from the early 2000s is you tend to watch and go, oh, this is aged kind of badly. And you say about the, le- like the leather costumes. But at the same time, the visual effects are done sparingly mm. and they're really good and the makeup is very good. Mm. And for that reason, it has a aged well process of visuals. I mean, at this stage, we were all still amazed that, that Wolverine's claws came out of his fucking hands. Yeah. That was like, <laughs> oh my God, look. Whereas then you get further down the line and you see Mystique being played by Jennifer Lawrence changing and you look at the Wolverine Origins film with the blades are horrific. Oh, God, yeah. And you just think, you had it right the first time. They, they do a really clever <clears throat> mix of, you know, very good CGI for the time. You know, yes. you, you go back and look at that Nightcrawler sequence oh, and that's it's, what I'm thinking, it's yeah. astonishing. Also um, a great addition of a new character there oh, who yeah, really yeah. felt like he got his own mm, space. Yeah. Which is- um, but they they also do a lot of practical stuff in it. The yeah. um, there's a great bit in the the mansion attack, which is probably one of my favourite sequences, where Iceman creates this huge ice wall, and that was actually real ice. Mm, wow. It was something like three three and a half thousand pounds of ice that they then yeah. exploded practically on the set. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, uh, that, that mansion hell. attack sequences. Loads of amazing wire work as well. Yeah. yeah. Flying around <clears throat> left, right and centre. Yeah, it, that, that, that sequence is such a perfect little segment of the film because it's basically mm. like, what if we did Die Hard <clears throat> except all the hostages had superpowers? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, you know, that, that, that just sort of uh, is perfect to me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think X2 is the first time I ever saw a film in the cinema that was a sequel and thought, I think that was better than the first. Mm, yeah, It's mm. not something that's happened very often at all, but I'm yeah, pretty definitely. sure that was the first. Yeah, and I, I know people have various mixed opinions about, about how the, the, um, the franchise proceeds, but for me, this is... This is as close as it gets to feeling like the comic book. I feel like yeah, it's always definitely. strayed away from, you know, it's become kind of its own beast, and it and it. Uh, no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, you know, for for all its strengths, it do, it doesn't really feel like the comics I know anymore. Like this, you know, it's still very rooted in the fact that it's a school here. You've got quite, you've got a young generation of heroes like mixing with the older kind of teachers slash superheroes. Um, and uh yeah it, it kind of it f- feels very much like the comics brought to life but in an accessible way mm. you know that you didn't have to be a giant nerd to appreciate but us giant nerds yeah we love it, it as well. yeah. yes we, did we also it. did appreciate it i guess it's my turn to take one then mm. and i'm gonna be greedy and take two. Oh, what Ooh. son of a bitch i'm going very modern i'm going for dawn of Slash War 4, the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Dawn of the Rise of the War of the Planet of the exactly, Apes. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. The Rise and the Dawn and the War of the Planet of the Apes. 
It does Why is it? It should be rise of the apes yeah, it, because yeah. the planet does not rise. Correct. Yes. The apes rise. The planet <laughs> stays the same. Unless you're on the moon. Oh uh, no. yeah, then you're all right. The Nobody's <laughs> on the moon. Apes on the moon for the fourth one. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I, Tim Burton did it. I'm sure. I, Nazi <laughs> apes on the moon. Just saying. Hey, now we're talking versus Transformers. Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> with, with Nazi Gilman in there as well. Stop. <laughs> you are giving Michael Bay ideas. Yeah. <laughs> He's literally going. Pause that podcast. Get me my notebook. He writes things. down. Down? No, he has he someone write it down. <laughs> I like that he has one person I mean, whose it... job is just to show up with his notebook <laughs> as he listens obsessively to podcasts. No, no, I, I mean, I, I think there's someone that basically is like a stenographer who basically notes down all of the, the, the ramblings he's scrawled on the wall with his own feces, but... Uh, <laughs> Oh, I'm yeah. more concerned about the person he says pause that podcast to. It's like one person <laughs> waiting, hovering with the finger by a button. Now, Mr. Bay, oh, I'll tell you when. <laughs> Mr. Bay, my finger's really starting. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Mark Wahlberg. I get it. <laughs> there we Mr. go. Bay. So, talking of apes, I'm kind of building on what Alex talked about aliens in that this trilogy escalates God, so yeah. perfectly. It builds this story arc between the three films so brilliantly, and that the it feels a very small beginnings, and you know you got the whole kind of oh it's a film with James Franco and they're redoing Apes again. Oh, that didn't go well last time. Speaking of Mark Wahlberg and <laughs> Tim Burton and that yeah. whole clusterfuck of a film, <laughs> and then it's like oh this is, this is pretty good. Yeah, I'm surprised how good this is. Yeah. And then Dawn happens. You're like fuck me, this is really good. Andy Serkis is amazing. Toby Kebbell is amazing. Mm, yeah. I suddenly introduced to Toby Kebbell. I was like, I recognise that guy. And I saw like behind the scenes motion yeah. capture things. I was like, he's fucking brilliant. I love Kebbell. And the thing that kind of blows my mind more than anything, I know people talk about these these films all the time, is the apes are so believable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I cannot get over the special effects in these movies. And I only recently watched War for the Planet of the Apes. Obviously, it's a very recent movie. Mm-hmm. But seeing the orangutan maurice in action and it's just like is that a real orangutan is that really a guy in a suit hanging out with that little girl like it's it's so amazing and i'm I'm not going to spoil anything i'm i'm hinting at things there but like it's incredible to to believe that it is andy circus in a ping pong ball doing performance (laughs) capture and things like that and it's incredible the scale like when you actually understand how they they do it a lot of the similar levels of motion capture in the past with stuff like avatar they do it within a volume so they do it within a studio space essentially and what they pioneered on these films was essentially turning a real set into a volume so essentially they're having to scan the entire set and turn that into kind of a, a motion a, a massive motion capture studio in order to actually film those kind of things on location and just the the sheer level of, of visual effects wizardry there is is incredible i think the the first one you you go back and watch it and there's you know there's a bit it's a bit rough around the edges by today's standards but you go and sit, like as you said we're seeing watching war on a massive you know on a massive really decent projector it's just like there's no way that if you, that you would, unless you knew that they weren't apes, you mm. would, and the fact that they're doing things that apes don't do, and, clearly. And you literally watch like Caesar's beard hairs yeah. get greyer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're watching this character you've followed for three films now mm-hmm. age, and it, it's escalation in terms of the the literal fights and battles and explosions and stuff like that, and that gets kind of more bombastic as it goes on. But it's the character development. You care so much about Caesar, and then you get into his kind of family life and things like that, and he's. More human than like any character I can think of in a modern trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like this is setting the standards for modern trilogies for me. Both the second and third films are better than the first, mm-hmm. and I can't think of anything in the last like 
20 years or maybe ever that that's true it, it, I, I rack my brain trying to think like Argu- Lord of the Rings I guess possibly the second, yeah, is, second yeah. or third is I discount that just because they were all made at the same time you mentioned how the fact that the first film feels a bit smaller mm. in a way where it's going on. the thing that always shocks me and I have to actually sort of pause when I'm writing a review for it especially and tell myself is that you watch these films and think this is actually quite intimate it's quite small quite small scale it's got a simple narrative and it's got a very simple emotional core and it's a very family story and you start fooling yourself and saying i wonder where all the money went and think these aren't real fucking apes <laughs> and you forget this is all a crafted painted film effectively yeah. and mm. then you again you see for a second that the motion capture has obviously been done exceptionally well and you do fool yourself and that's that's the the true if for lack of a better word, gift the film gives you is the illusion for at least two hours that these beings are real and most importantly, we are all shit people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you emulate more with a fake monkey, or an ape I should say, than an actual human being and their plight because of how it's been done. And it's, again, I would personally chalk it up to obviously the performances, definitely, and the visual effects, but Matt Reeves coming on board mm-hmm. is a major important thing because it's one of those things that can be done... Sometimes it's great when you have someone who has no association with a, pro- um, a property at all and comes in with a fresh perspective. But when someone is an absolute avid fan mm. of the concept and the idea and the execution of what this thing can be, it's what it, it, again, as you say, Rise is a perfectly acceptable film, really enjoyable, very well put together, and extremely well acted. Dawn and War, however, are just entirely different. I would love to have seen a complete trilogy done by Matt Reeves. I would think it would have been yeah, yeah. genuinely like the perfect film trilogy. The thing I love about Dawn as well is it's so long, really, in that movie before a human character comes in. Yeah. You spend yeah. a lot yeah. of time... The, the opening sequence yeah. is just sign language for like oh, 10 God, minutes, yeah. 15 it's minutes. Really it's a really bold long. opening. It's a really yeah. bold statement that mm-hmm. that movie makes about the kind of movie that it is in a way that Rise didn't. As you said, Rise is... It's, Good film. It's a very good film, but it's a it's a lot more of a cautious movie. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. I love Dawn because it is a confident sequel. And it ups the ante, it changes things around a bit, but it takes more risks and it takes more risks with the characters and whatever. It's absolutely compelling <laughs> for that reason. I also think it's something it does something that and that a lot of good sequels do, um, and they, it, I don't, this is going to sound contentious, but it, it goes darker progressively, and that oh, can definitely. that can be done really badly. See, for example, things like Batman and uh, Batman versus Superman, all that kind of. Oh, it goes darker, and when darkness is kind of what a teenage adolescent boy would think of darkness, but it <laughs> it's darker in that. It's like visually, obviously, I'm always looking visuals, but the vi- I mean, the visuals of all of them are beautiful. But they they visually get the uh, dawn in particular with that sort of the the, the forest setting, um, and the final battle between Cobra and yeah, Caesar in, in dawn is, in the collapsing mm, tower is just incredible. Mm-hmm. They're just lit by the fires of this, yeah. which which tower. makes it's what incredible. they're doing even more difficult which is insane like in terms of motion capture in the dark and create that in the dark as if lit by practical sources it's insane but it also thematically gets darker and actually is unafraid to deal with them some really quite uncomfortable sort of themes as good all good kind of all good movies you know the the argument science fiction's for yeah and all good movies about the apocalypse it's about making us consider our own mortality our own fragility as a race but and I think a lot of good sequels, um, you know, they, they do that. You know, Aliens gets darker, this gets darker. Um, Last Crusade, kind of, but not. But but you know, if you can do that well, and and uh, I guess that kind of darkness is kind of shorthand for kind of I guess depth in in everything. It yeah. does does that really really well. Yeah, and I think you know what Alec was saying about confidence is really interesting because you know it, uh, with with Rise it did feel 
almost like a sort of technical test. Mm. Like, let's see if we can do this. Let's make quite a small scale film. Yeah. And then going into sequels, they, they're like, we know we can do this. Let's get amb- ambitious now. Yeah. Um, to make a video game comparison, it's almost like Portal and then Portal 2. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. yeah, yeah video yeah. game nerds out there are like, yeah, here's a tech test, here's an actual thing with a story in it, now it's one of the best games ever made. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. Basically, similar, along similar kind of lines. Yeah, and I think, you know, yeah, that building that maturity, building that darkness, and, 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 and just kind of being willing to sort of say, like, we're, we're really going to scale this up now, we're really going to show you what we can do. Mm-hmm. What I will also say with those films, something that they did, which I think is interesting from our perspective, is they effectively sequelized the sequels for the original Planet of the Apes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. really, they've taken the lesser Apes sequels, and I, I like all of the original Apes films. It, Don't I you think just? That, I think, <laughs> yes. I think um, <laughs> Not Tim Burton and Wolf. No, 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 good lord, no. But the original films from the yes. 60s and 70s... You and I, I kind think, of bonded over that yeah. when we first met, didn't we? Yeah. Because I think while a lot of the latter ones are deeply flawed, they put forth some really interesting ideas that they then that. play, that they don't take to their full potential. And Dawn, in particular, um, really realised that in a way that it was like... It's like, hey, this is a remake of the fifth Planet of the Apes film. It's really good. It's uh, like it's such a weird, weird thing. I love that sense. This is a remake of the fifth Planet of the Apes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, and this is maybe controversial, and maybe I couldn't give a fuck. I personally hold this trilogy as a whole as an, a complete story because God, and no spoilers here, but God damn, the ending does make it a wonderful complete story. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would say it's better than Planet of the Apes, the original. I agree. Because the Planet of the Apes is a great film and very much of its time and very well executed and just a, a real piece of cinematic sci-fi culture. But what's done here is somehow so different. And not just in the sense that it's, you know, it's more modern and it looks better. Because the, the, the way that the music is done so beautifully and it just homages that 60s, 70s sort of sound as well. And the old classic scores and things. But it, it takes everything that was good about the concept. It escalates it. It gives you... It twists it on its head because at no point in Planet of the Apes do we really... In the original, I should say. Do we ever really sympathise with the apes much? It's always like, oh, look at the weird culture. Oh, but Charlton Heston will shoot his way out of here. The humans are slaves. This one, we I genuinely believe it makes a very flawed and very interesting human element... And there are always like you know good elements within the human world, but most of the time you don't sympathise with them. You're yeah. almost always rooting for the apes to win, which basically is masochism on the greatest level because you're trying <laughs> to kill yourself. And and just the the balls to to take that first film and go, yeah, we don't need to keep any of the human cast. Yeah, like yeah. we've got we've got Caesar. He is the character that we're following. He mm. is the title character. You know, it's Planet of the Apes. It ain't Planet of the Humans reacting to the apes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Planet that- of the Franco. <laughs> Planet of the Francos. Um, so to be willing to say, like, no, he is our main character. Mm. The apes are the ones we're following. We're going to give you a second film with a completely new human cast. And we're also going to, you know, their story is done in the, in the second film. And we follow Caesar on to the third film. And, you know, there's there's not really any connective tissue as far as the yeah. human characters like the universal are, monster uh, characters as you're here for the not, I'm not saying Caesar's a monster but you're here yeah. for that character you're not here for the human contingent who let's face it wheel them in wheel them off who gives a fuck yeah they're yeah. obstacles come for Clint Eastwood stay for the gill man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those films also to kind of wrap things up they also have an amazing thing of you have those human characters mm-hmm. and they play off Caesar's progression and Caesar's 
descent into the darkness in his battle with Cobra, and oh, then what God, he goes yeah. through in War Four, mm. his kind of do I take it to the next level? Am I the am I the cause of this? Is this my fault? Do I want to extinct the humans? And there's this kind of brilliant oh, yeah. kind of balance and dichotomy, and you see Andy Circus acting it so brilliantly. And the and, fact that man hasn't got. I mean, at, at this point, we don't know anything about the Oscars, but I'm already saying it now. It's probably a fucking travesty that hasn't been nominated because I know yeah. he won't be nominated for the yeah, war, but he deserves some recognition mm, for yeah. what he's done for mocap. And it's it's the fact that, like most things with a lot of um, award shows and award bodies and Cerberus uh, uh, institutions like that, they don't see it as acting. It's like, that is the mistake. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And it's interesting hearing Circus talk about that sort of stuff because he doesn't mm. call it motion capture anymore. He calls it performance capture. Correct. Because yeah. they're capturing details in the face and raising of eyebrows and frowning yes. and crying mm. and everything. And as Tom was saying, they're doing it on set now, which is insane. Yep. And I think these films will have far-reaching influence, more so than they're going to be given credit for. And sure, there's people and film nerds like us who are like, it's the best modern trilogy of films, you should fucking pay attention to it. Yeah. But they've kind of flown under the radar, it feels like they have, and I feel like they will age incredibly well and have yeah. this influence going forward they kind of always felt to me and that's what i've always loved about them is they're kind of art house blockbusters yeah like they're, absolutely. They're, 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 that's what yeah. i when i first saw the first one i was like oh it's a like that lovely august like art house kind of under the radar mm-hmm. thing that as you say will hopefully age and we'll be talking about for many years Went to come under the radar and like like made like 500 million dollars because yeah. they've all done really oh, yeah, well, they've well. Done really it's well. just that people yeah. don't talk about them nearly exactly. as much as fucking yeah. should as yeah. marvel or Star. hey it starts <laughs> now yeah, the revolution, not the ape revolution. They're talking about the apes. Let's revolution. start the conversation. <laughs> talking about the war of the planet of the apes. Yeah, <laughs> as our new podcast. <laughs> well, Alec just mentioned a certain franchise. It's over to you, Tom Martin. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to be talking about my favourite film of all time, and in fact, the the reason that I like films, which is the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I have a very personal connection with this film in that I watched it on a very snowy New Year's Eve five. And uh, started kind of watching about halfway through with the the the, uh, the Hoth battle, and I saw that, and that pretty much sent me on my my mm. journey to uh, to pretty much being the filmmaker and talking about films that I, that uh, I am today. I um, thought I thought for a moment you were going to say, and that sent me on my journey to, to Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 um, no. To becoming a Jedi. <laughs> becoming a Jedi. <laughs> oh, that's that's why I'm going to Birmingham. Right? No. So no, it's a really interesting film. I remember as a child, like loving parts of it like the 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 atat battle i mean that was the bit that i pretty much watched that film was like dad can you buy me an atat and i i still have that atat to this day uh, it's my most prized possession honestly i remember like not like thinking that sort of liking it as a kid but kind of i think it was basically it's a, it, it's a very adult film it, it takes what the first film is 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 very kind of not basic but quite simple and streamlined and a bit a bit like what alec was saying about uh, sort of uh, alien it's it, you know you don't really learn too much about the world and this one does what very much what Aliens does, and it, it it fleshes out the world. It makes the stakes much bigger. Um, it's a much more darker uh, sort of film, and it does also what I was alluding to earlier. And it really deepens um, the the relationships between the characters and and the the characters themselves. Obviously, the the big thing being the big reveal. Spoilers if you've not heard this before, then you're frankly insane. <laughs> but the welcome fact the that internet. welcome to the internet and welcome yeah. But obviously, Darth welcome Vader to pop being culture and life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Darth Vader being Luke Skywalker. It just, what? Uh, 
<laughs> that now says that, that now. I'm saying I'm Darth Vader yeah, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> exactly. Darth He's just Vader running back and forth really fast. <laughs> Obviously, Darth Vader being Luke Skywalker's father. Um, I'm loving that... the idea of like uh, Luke Skywalker split personality. Yeah. The whole oh, movie, the Fight Club edition. Yeah, yes. yeah. Empire Strikes but, Back. Uh, but yeah, no. That that being the case, it just changes the entire dynamic. And I think the other thing it does that's really interesting is that it completely. It completely changes the structure of the films. Um, most, pretty much all of the other Star Wars films have this kind of structure whereby towards the end, I mean, Return of the Jedi is the, the perfect example of that, Of but the last third of the film is essentially three battles intercut with each other. Um, this completely, obviously, that came prior to this, but that completely ignores that. You have the massive battle sort of pretty much got out of the way within the first hour, mm. and the, the rest of the film is essentially just a series of really crushing defeats, <laughs> and it ends on a on a on a real cliffhanger mm. and it's it's just almost really for a film series that is often accused of being for kids it is punishingly dark um, and incredibly adult and it, it just I think that is down to the reason for that is um, is the fact that obviously George Lucas didn't direct this one yeah. after yeah, after um, sort of basically burning out directing the first one he um, after Lee Brackett did a a, 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 a a sort of a pass on the script and then she sadly died of cancer he then did a few passes and then they were punched up by Lawrence Kasdan because he was doing that and also kind of running ILM and also turning Lucasfilm into this kind of independent filmmaking thing he needed someone else to direct it so he turned around to one of his old teachers from the University of uh, California, which is Irvin Kirshner, and said, hey, do you want to come direct it? And the, the kind of the genius in that, and actually apparently I was, I was looking up this, that Kirshner actually turned around and was like, why do you want me to direct this? I'm not the man for this. Yeah, he basically said no. <laughs> yeah, he basically said no, and then his agent turned around and said, you fucking kidding me, you're going to say yes. Um, but he, he is a director that at that point... Uh, even though, ironically, he went on to direct one of our bad sequels, which was Robocop 2. Yeah. Um, he he directed quite small, intimate, non-sci-fi films. And I think his approach was very much to, to not look at it as a sci-fi film um, and to just to, to look at it in almost kind of more of an art house sensibility. And I think that's kind of why it's successful is that, yeah, it is a, it is kind of a, a darker, more adult sort of art house look at Star Wars. And I think that's why it works so well. So I added a little bit in here as well about the um, the ending because um, a lot of people when they say about oh it's a, a half film like with the Pirates of the Caribbean mm. two and three and they say oh it's a film cut in half and then say well Star Wars does it no it does not no. Star Wars ends it has a cliffhanger as you say and it but it ends has an absolute closure to it it just has an open ending for a story to continue mm. uh, yeah arcs are yeah. finished character arcs things yeah. happen uh, by there is resolution there is. It's not particularly like it is a cliffhanger resolution yeah. in in that sense. Well, you do wonder what is going to happen next, but there is yes. resolution. It's just that the resolution is all the things that you didn't want to happen happened. Yes, mm. <laughs> I said that regard. It's a more pleasing visual or emotional final ending point than the first Star Wars because Star Wars ends on a really big triumphant, you know, the, the, the New Hope ends on a really big medal. Yeah, for Chewie. Hashtag Chewie was robbed. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But the way it ends is fine, and it works, and obviously I'm not going to discredit it because it's Star Wars, but the way that Empire ends, you do have to take a look over the whole film and think, what the hell? I was not prepared for this. Mm. And that's the one of the wonderful things cinema can do for you, is say, we know you're here for entertainment, but entertainment means a lot of things. Uh, yeah, Empire does kind of catch you <clears throat> off guard, because it would have been really easy for it to have been another space opera oh, thing yeah. Yeah. and audiences at the time didn't love it this is the interesting thing is it has grown into a classic where critics were really divided on it mm. people thought 
it was a very it was a change of pace that people didn't always connect with and i think that's the interesting thing with empire strikes back is it took what was a phenomenon and could easily have just replicated Mm. that but it played with the formula and it challenged it a Mm. bit not so much that it doesn't feel like because while empire certainly has its moments of darkness i still think it it holds up as a kid's film brilliantly Mm. and i think which if it failed to do that revenge of the sith it would fail to be a like a, an affecting Star Wars movie, and I think it it holds up. It still holds up really well as that. But as you said, it's it's darker. It's got a bit more depth. It's got some great written romance stuff in it. The, mm. the Han and Leia stuff is great, and they touch on that. It's brilliant how they pull something that was just a seed in the first mm. film and really make it so central to the mm. to the mm-hmm. narrative. Plus, it's got a Boba Fett. The, the greatest, was, the greatest unnecessary secondary character <laughs> in the history of cinema. It has now vastly transcended his basic yeah. cameo yeah. in that yeah. film. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say was that it, it introduces, um, mm. or rather, really shines a light upon the shades of grey in that universe. It's, it's implied in the first Star Wars, but you've literally got, you know, the whole bounty hunters. We don't need their scum. That whole uh, sort of introduction of that, and also kind of the introduction of sort of. Moral grey areas, like the idea that I remember literally when I saw this film uh, and, you know, as, a, as like a five-year-old and uh, I think basically I watched it and then we dad was like, actually, no, you need to watch Star Wars first and then bought me all of them. And then we watched, sat down and watched Empire Strikes Back and then I remember literally going out for a walk with him. And I was like, I don't understand, Dad. Like, why would why would Obi-Wan lie to, to, to Luke? And he was like, well, actually, you know, sometimes you know, the truth can hurt. And it was that that moral yeah. kind of grey area that is introduced, even from a from a child's perspective. But there is the idea that this universe isn't just black and white, isn't good versus evil. There are shades of grey. And also the other thing I would say about it is that actually a lot of what we iconically think of as Star Wars, to touch on your point, is with Boba Fett and everything else, a lot of it's actually introduced in this film. Like the Imperial March is one of the things that people just all automatically mm. associate with um with Star Wars. Actually yeah. that's from that's from this film. Yeah. Um a lot you know, stuff like At Ats and, and Boba Fett and, and a lot of the kind of iconography of Star Wars I actually is from this film. From a design level it took what was already a visually really strong film but with just with a bit more budget and a bit more mm. everything else. They do really up the ante there. It's oh, really? visually lush as a movie the design is consistent without feeling like everything's the same like mm. when you go to cloud city it feels like it's part of that world but it's a it's a much nicer yes, different part of the world yeah, yeah. now i first saw it it would have been like about 1982 i think when i was about six years old because uh, return of the jedi was just coming out and they were showing star wars and uh, empire strikes back together as a thing. It was still about a year off, I think, Return of the Jedi. I was like, oh, you can watch them both. And I'd kind of seen bits of Star Wars and hadn't seen any of The Empire Strikes Back because it wasn't on telly back in the day. And we didn't have VHS players because we were still worshipping fire and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, we live in Norwich. And, um, yeah, I remember it's firstly being exciting just to go to the cinema because when you're six years old it didn't happen that much back then so it was you know conceived or perceived as being pricey but um i remember it felt like it lasted forever because obviously star wars straight into uh, <laughs> yeah. empire strikes back but it was ju- not jarring but it was surprising how bleak things got in empire strikes back it's very physically dark especially when you're looking at things like the cloud city uh bespin freezing chamber that's really nice. dark and harshly written lit and red and that was really frightening and then suddenly 
Vader is Luke's dad. Like, oh my god! And then it gets to the end, and it's like, well, you don't have to wait a year or so to see the next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're six, you don't want to wait a year to see what happens <laughs> yeah. to the story. You know? And things like I remember the, I mean, the intensity of like the bit where Han is getting tortured, where like mm. the way he's sc- he's screaming and like yeah, that yeah. cut. It's I just, still don't know what the machine does. It just puts a load of sparks. <laughs> just a, just a bed of needles, and he just gets loaded yeah, onto it. Slowly, it sparks his face. A lot to me. Me. And yeah. there's Boba Fett's one line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not anymore, you mean, it's not. He's worth a lot to me. Yeah. No, no I fucking <laughs> don't. No, I it's, fucking don't. Well, no, actually, no, to be fair, he also gets put Captain Solo in the cargo hold. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, he does yeah. have another line. He's no good to he's me, dead. Yeah. He's no good to and me, the, dead. Yeah. yeah. And but yeah, it, it <laughs> uh, Tamara Morrison. Tamara Morrison Bombs is yeah. Tam- Tamara is, Morrison. Just, is, 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 you, call, you call that a blaster? Oh, this is a blaster. But sounding like Taika Waititi or something. <laughs> now when there's I mean, a force ghost, oh, it's going to run uh, in. This piece of ghost. <laughs> Taika Waititi potentially directing a Star Wars film. Possibly, yeah, that would be amazing. Well, this yeah. time it's already confirmed or denied. So you tell us, listeners. Yeah. yeah. Luke's film have officially reached out. Don't actually yeah. tell us; we'll know as well. By the yeah, time we'll, see, we do. well, yeah, don't don't even. Um, but no, so so to to wrap it up, basically, I think it's it is. Up, I would say, from a personal perspective, that and, and aliens, in my perspective, are sort of the the blueprints for creating a good sequel, uh, and it's one of the best sequels of all time, and is uh, as I say, my favourite film of all time. So uh, yeah, if you've not seen it, I don't quite know why you wouldn't have done, but there are weirdos out there, you know, they all need a bit of help. <laughs> 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 always... Bit Voskins came Bit Voskins came out there. If anybody's listening to a podcast about fiction yeah, sequels, sequels and you've not and seen it, that's seen what, well that's why I said it was a bit, you might be a bit of a weirdo and you're not seeing it, so just do yourself a favour, it's on pretty much everything, just go watch it. <laughs> I like how... Sometimes it's like, ah, there's the Tom who used to run around with a gang of boy thieves stealing kerchiefs. <laughs> yes. Do know, yourself like, a favour. Do yourself a favour. Yeah, yeah. You've got a pick a pocket or two, I say. <laughs> it happens. Sometimes I can sound very, very, very well to do. And sometimes I just, no, I don't. Do yourself a favour, love. Go and uh, go watch Empire Strikes Back. Go and release a pigeon. Yeah, go. <laughs> They've not. Oh no, they would have listened. Ah, yeah. uh, yes. You're yes. aware of what it means, means to, release to release a, a pigeon, pigeon and the effect I'm, that that has. I'm on I'm kind our of problem. hoping that in the future, like, like we'll flash forward two months and they'll just it'll be a phenomenon. They'll be like, they'll be like, you know, pigeon t-shirts, pigeon t-shirts and it's. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're on your deathbed and go release oh, a pigeon <laughs> and just die. Release <laughs> the pigeon. Why would I be in my deathbed in two months? Let's hope that's I would be. Thing. I would be laughing so much. Uh, many years in the future. Many years in the future. Pigeon, you don't Imagine get it. Just lay Miz style where Tom just dies of nothingness. And just... <laughs> release, release the pigeons. His his heart is just giving up the will to live. No, oh, Lucas, God. that no. is not a thing. No, You're, you a medical she droid? She died of love. She died of love. No, she, she did. Now her pancreas giving up. The will to live. That's a, that's a well-known ailment. Yep. But, uh, yeah. A lot of love in that pancreas. Got to name these yeah. babies. Yeah. You got to keep your pancreas interested. Oh, God, that Give bit. it a little presents. Don't even yeah. get me started on that yeah. bit. Where it's like I'm dying. I'm dying, I'm dying, Luke. I'm dying, I'm dying, Leia. I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> terrible. Anyway. Terrible. Anyway, so moving on. Yep, that was the worst bit of that movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. All the movie was bad. To go to the final sequelizer and the final fantastic sequel. Mr. Matthew Stogden. Um, well, everyone's had a little bit of a different uh, uh, disparate link between the films. Um, for my one, I'm going with another star. Ooh. <laughs> Quest. But which Correct. kind of Gate. star? Stargate. Oh, SG- I, I do love Stargate and I love SG-1, but that's not the point. Because SG-1 is the best sequel to Stargate, but that's not the point. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. So, 
That's the good one, I'm directed by J.J. Abrams with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, oh, close, very of- close. Khan. My name is Khan. Khan. People will always need Khan. Khan. So basically, for those who don't know, of, of, of the five, uh, six films, sorry, five films that preceded, everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Star Trek is always a divisive one. It's always the little runt of the litter because, um, because everyone loves Star Wars. Indeed, I do as well. But Star Trek is better. Now, what? Bear with me. What? Star Trek is better because Good job the, I'm universe, leaving, <laughs> the universe itself that it builds is much more interesting. It's more divisive. It's got more you can do with it. And it's the better part of our future. Now, Star Trek 2 Wrath of Khan, very, very That's different. because Star Wars is in the past, Matthew. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's a long time ago in a fuck you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, right, right, right. Star Trek 2 Wrath of Khan. So... Start, for those, a little bit of boring history. So Star Trek, the original series, is on TV. It does okay, and then it stops. Simple as that. Um, and then Star Wars comes out and says, oh shit, star things are important again. Let's get something going with the Star Trek. We have the rights to this thing. Let's bring all the cast back. Star Trek, the motion picture comes out in 1979, and it's not good. <laughs> it costs $45 million, which was an insane amount of money at the time. It was really fucking long and really fucking boring. <laughs> Isn't famously the uh, intro credit sequence to mm. Star Trek the yeah. Motion Picture cost more than the whole of the film Airplane? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it's, an ins- it's an insane film. And the thing is, it, it great kept fact. escalating because of Roddenberry's involvement and what he was doing with it. And the thing is, the actual principle of the film is really fucking interesting science fiction. Mm. Um, what, Vija and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, the Vija stuff is really fascinating. It's like, we sent a probe out in the in, you know the, the, the 20th century, and it came back and it learned, and it, it didn't know what it was anymore. It thought it was looking for its god, but it's us. And it's, it's just really fucking simple, logic, brilliant, good stuff. Yeah. But it's in a bullshit fucking shell of coconut <laughs> lies. It's it's awful. <laughs> but Bullshit shell of coconut <laughs> lies. <laughs> yes, and I want that on a t-shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a t-shirt and a half yeah. right there. That's, That's the, the point... thing you've just said. <laughs> I always wanted by. to like that film more than I did. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, we've remember. all tried to like it, I think. Mm. So it basically kind of killed Star Trek. And they brought on Harv Bennett as a producer. And he was from TV. And they said, can you make this film a sequel to Star Trek? And he said... Yes, I can. And I think one uh, the, the story goes that one producer very uh, angrily said, can you make it for less than 45 fucking million dollars? And he said, where I come from, we can make five films with that. So he goes away very confident and he gets a very few people involved. And at this point, Harv Bennett has seen no Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so watches all of Star Trek. And he stops at Space Seed, the episode with Khan in it, and says, that's a villain. We don't have a villain in the first film. That's what we need. Um, and this is the first time ever a film has been produced... Um, that is a direct sequel to a TV series episode. Interesting. Yeah. And he says, this is a great story. What would happen to this character? He's, he just leaves him in it. And it's the, and the line at the end of the episode, I think Kirk says, uh, sorry, Spock says to Kirk, I wonder what um, fruit will grow from the seed you've left on that planet. It's like a space seed, as it were. And no, then Kirk the... left a lot of seed and a lot of planets. <laughs> he left a lot of seed and a lot <laughs> of green ladies as well. But... Yeah. He did. The Gorn. Um, <laughs> 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 oh my god. That's why he talks about that. <laughs> anyway, so he then brought on a few other people and different uh, uh, versions come in. And there's like, there are multiple titles. There's the um, Star Trek II uh, War of the Generations was the original draft title. And it was going to be about how Kirk's son was leading an uprising. Then it was Star Trek II the Omega Syndrome, which was a weapon that they were generating, which then became the Genesis device. Then it's the undiscovered country when Maya gets involved, but the studio doesn't like it, so they call it Vengeance of Khan. 
But Lucasfilm suddenly step in and say, you can't call it that. We've got a film coming out called Revenge of the, of the Jedi. And it's too close. And yeah. they're like, okay, fine. We'll call it Wrath of Khan. And they turn around and say, oh yeah, by the way, Jedi don't do revenge. It's Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it's like, you dumb bastards. We just wanted to fuck you over. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Star Trek. Anyway, so it eventually becomes Wrath of Khan and then obviously the director's cut comes out. Nicholas Meyer, the director, who listeners all know from our Superman episode, comes in and as again, hasn't got any Star Trek in him at all. He doesn't he hasn't seen any of it either. So he watches it all fresh and goes, Oh I get it. It's human analogy analogy in space. Uh, sorry, human allegory in space. And and just literally says, I don't need to be a hardcore fan to get what this is about. And they make this really personal story about a man uh, the the analogy I think he made was um Sherlock Holmes. When he's not got a case, he's bored. And that's Kirk as an admiral. It's like I don't have anything to do. I'm training kids and I fucking hate my life. And he's around collecting his antiques. He's got musket pistols on the wall. He's got a Commodore like PET in the background. It's like, <laughs> that's a weird antique for you to have. But obviously at the time it was, you know, random new. So all this sort of stuff. And they made a personal story and they only had $11 million to make it with. So everything is the, and this is kind of the reason why it's my pick is because it's my favorite kind of filmmaking. Absolute favorite kind of filmmaking, which is taking something that people may or may not be familiar with reworking it, making a much more emotional centre, because again, Maya just said, uh, and Harv Bennett said, this triangle, Kirk, McCoy, Spock, is it. Mm-hmm. You need something that's going to completely fuck with that. And Nimoy didn't want to be in Star Trek anymore. They said, we're writing them out. We're going to kill them off. That's great. And he enjoyed it so much that he said, is there any way I can like come back? <laughs> um, so they obviously developed this plot story that he, you know, we'd be able to, to return him. But then they also, the, the story started to leak out that uh, Nimoy was going to die. So Maya had this whole sequence at the start of the film where all the crew die in a simulator experience. So everyone has the sort of full sense of security. Oh, that's what they meant. It was just a, right, fair enough. And then by the end of the film, everyone's weeping. You have this thing, but the reason I like it that much as, as a filmmaker is because they've given, they've been given the, the, the props and the sets that are lying around from the first film and said, you've got no money. So they take all the costumes from the first film and they dye them. And the only things they'll take is like a sort of dark blue, a gold, and a red. And they said, right, red. We'll do all the extras. We'll wear these things, and we'll get some costumes for the actual main cast. Uh, all the sets are from the old sort of films. Like the um, Kirk's apartment. The backdrop is the backdrop from the Towering Inferno because they literally just stole anything they could to make this thing work. And it's the best kind of thrifty filmmaking that way it works. And the fact as well, they couldn't get Ricardo Montalban back at the same time because he was on TV on Fantasy Island. So this massive painful rivalry between these two people and they're never in the same room and it just has this idea of elevating it from you know a hokey sort of tv series thing and high sci-fi and all this sort of like roddenberry saying oh it's all about the the perfect future and all this stuff and it's all like space jesus is going around and, and, and having like and picard is a great example of space jesus but he's just he's always doing the right thing and it's like yeah that's kind of not really something i can emulate and something i can see myself on it's something i can aspire to be and this takes that and just um sort of corrupts it in a way and gives you this sort of dynamic that works in a very different style and as this this like his son and things like that and it just makes a very very toned film because it has to be i think it's a really interesting example because it's one of the few times where you can point at a sequel and go they took that smaller and it really yeah works completely by making it because as you said star trek the motion picture is so overblown and it's so lacking in focus and everything else but even though they threw all the money at it and to have a movie that is that lean and as you said to get really to the heart of it and to get really to the heart of that (laughs) triangle of characters Mm -hmm. there particularly of course dynamic between kirk and spock but to really 
introduce as well a compelling villain. Yes. Which, because this is an example, an interesting example, because I think this is the first time when we've had one in this list where the original's been kind of meh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's a debate what it's a sequel to, because it is also a sequel to the, the TV show episode. Right, yeah, yeah. Which is not kind of meh. It's, you know, so without Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, you wouldn't have the massive Star Trek revival that you have in the 80s Completely. through into the 90s. And it, it, well. it Jetson, it, it launches a trilogy of films effectively for 2, 3, and 4, and also all the naval stuff, because Roddenberry was never a fan of that sort of thing about militarizing it. But Meyer's inclusion of the naval aspect... And the, f- the fact that he understands, and this is what I love the most about it, it takes the idea that in space, it's not a dogfight like Star Wars. No offense, Tom, and Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's a submarine battle. Mm. It's three-dimensional. No, I do love yeah. that aspect of it. That and he, he takes that thing that hadn't been done before, and it, that there is, I think that is probably more of what people would think as key Star War, Star Trek lore that is drawn upon more than the original series. Yeah, I think um, talking about the different views that Maya and Roddenberry had kind of coming towards it is really mm. interesting because I think, you know, like like you say, Roddenberry's vision is this kind of utopian human ideal of, you know, everything that we should aspire to, which is interesting and, it, and it's oh, yeah. interesting to see, you know, how that plays out. But but the thing is that even if you, if you have that situation, human drama and human interactions still should bring something interesting to that. Yeah. So having that core three characters, that, that great Kirk, Spock, McCoy dynamic... Uh, and bringing the, the the family stuff and the idea mm-hmm. of a, a really compelling villain shows that you can have a kind of utopian setting <laughs> while still having these really interesting conflicts that that had come from character. Which again is something that a lot of later Star Trek stuff did really well. It's obviously hugely influential on future Star Trek media as well. Mm. It's one of the reasons I really like the film because I find my my criticism with Star Trek is usually that exactly what you were saying about the Picard kind of space Jesus kind of thing is that it is very plain and almost going back to what's about empire it doesn't really have that many shades of gray and actually i think you know make basing it around the the very human idea of revenge and actually the the flaws in kirk's character where you know actually his kind of space running around running through space womanizing and just kind of Hmm. interfering in people's Mm -hmm. lives and actually the fact that there is a there is there is a very real consequence yeah. of that that is brought forward. I think that's that's why it works so well. And actually, all, all of the Star Trek films that I actually like, which is that one, uh, I really like First Contact, yeah. and uh, I, I'm a really big fan of the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek film. I, I really really enjoy that one. I think all of them, to a lesser or greater extent, are dealing with the human consequences against the backdrop of this world. And I think where Star Trek really falls down is where it basically comes down to what the Roddenberry one does and a lot of the stuff that the the TV series that doesn't work is it's just talking about positronic phase science (laughs) and it's very detached from humanity and emotions Mm. and it's Mm. just about this kind of utopic science lesson in space. space. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Or, Or when it goes the other way and it forgets that it's meant to be humans reaching towards being yeah. their best possible yes. thing, but kind of coming up against their own shittiness, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So there is a horrible sterility sometimes to some of the next generation stuff yeah. and beyond, where like the deck of the Enterprise sometimes feels like an office. You know, yeah. Yeah. there's the manager and there's the human resources or hospital manager. Ward or something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. That sort of um, Apple Genius Bar thing, where it feels <laughs> halfway between a laboratory and a waiting room in Definitely. some sort of kind of airport. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Last thing I'll sort of say on it is, um, again, how the film was made. Again, that lack of budget, that thrifty mindset, and, you know, what can we do to make this work? And the idea that 
so many interesting visual sequences took place in the motion picture. And again, in the director's cut of the motion picture, where they've refined them quite nicely, they have had to recycle so many clips and bits of footage. But uh, there's a combination of two things. Now, I will always badmouth James Horner, because fuck James Horner. (laughs) But James Horner's score is fucking amazing. Because uh, Jerry Goldsmith is a hard thing to follow. Because I love Jerry Goldsmith. He's my favourite composer. And he's a hard man to follow in the sense that his theme... He took this original Star Trek theme from the TV series and said, nah, I don't want to do that. And made what is now considered the next generation theme. And it's just amazingly big and orchestral. And the whole score is beautiful. And Horner's was very symphonic in the same sort of way. But it, it alluded to the original series theme. And it just incorporated it really fucking nicely. And the second thing on that on top of it is the visual effects. Because... You had on despite having no money, they managed to have the first full CGI sequence in a film ever, which is the Genesis sequence done by ILM. Um, no one had done a full just CGI, really? and they they mm. mapped out uh, a fake moon based on a constellation. So I think they got like the um, Orion. I think they got like the Plow, for example, the Plow Man, if you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, and they they reversed it, saying like, okay, what happens if you look at it from a perspective something there? And they had an extra star, which is our sun, and they actually mapped out the universe properly on it, which is insane. And there's the, that side of digital filmmaking that's you know so far forward and so thing. And the, you know that part of the office I mentioned went to big Pixar and all those sort of things. The people who made the the, the star sequences, there's the guy who, I can't remember his name, but he went off to make Adobe eventually. Oh, no, John Warnock. No. And on the other side of things, they're like, how do we do this, like, like the Nebula sequence, for example, and it comes down to, like, well, let's just get water, sorry, salt water and fresh water, chuck in some um, um, rubber and a few other bits and pieces and light them with gels. And it ages really fucking well because it's not shitty, you know, early mm. 80s, late 70s and crappy graphics. It's a combination of the most cutting-edge CGI and really simple in-camera, sort of almost silent movie sort of stuff, but just pays off beautifully. And yes, I think it's an amazing film, but it looks fucking ropey at times. It does look very cheap, but it doesn't matter because it the was story, cheap. The, yeah, it was cheap, <laughs> and the character and the stories are so good, and so the emotional hit of his was the most human. Yeah, just a great, great close, and it, but still quite uplifting because of the whole spoilers. Spock in a torpedo tube, maybe he's dead, <laughs> but maybe also he's you're missing, dead. you know, the best bit. The best bit, which is the plexiglass bit. Well, I was also going to say. Or you're referring to the bit when they pan out from the planet. Yes. We uh, have yes. Uh, yeah. Shatner's face contorted. Yeah. Very <laughs> alive. Very alive. It's the, it's the two, though. It's the first one, and then it's. It, it, yeah. It's just. It's, yeah. But the thing is, that has an actual resonance because you've established yeah, the character yeah. in, this, in Space Seed. You've established who he is. You have an actual rivalry, and he hates him because he's become so twisted and warped on this planet he's been desecrated on, and so on and so forth. And that's great. You don't introduce him as a new character and say, my name is Khan, <laughs> as if that means And you anything. also don't spend the entire press campaign for the film denying that that's oh, yeah, what the character oh, yeah. is. I will tell you guys later about the interesting theory I read about that, because, or I can tell you now, but probably... Tell us now. Mind. Okay, I read a really interesting thing about the making of uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, and essentially what someone is po- who is far a far bigger, probably as big a Star Trek nerd as I am a Star Wars nerd, has posited that the original plan was not for uh, Benedict Cumberbatch to play Khan. He was, ar- he was originally going to play uh, a character called Gary something, I can't remember Busey. what. Busey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and essentially, if he's done an analysis of an original uh, t- uh, episode of the TV series, and basically it seemed... Oh, Gary Hamilton, what was it? Uh, yeah, but what, someone who was... I can't, 
people are going to go. Gary oh, Mitchell. Gary Mitchell. Yeah, Gary. and basically in From the standards, yeah. <laughs> in in the episode, he becomes he kind of uh, is taken over by this thing and becomes this almost like godlike creature. And yeah. basically, that was alluded to at one point during the production of Star Trek Into Darkness. And actually, if you look at the there's certain things like the the prison set that they've built and the way it's been shot yeah, is basically a similar. a shot for shot reference from the the TV episode. And a lot right, of the right. circumstances that happen. Uh, within the film appear to be that. And what the theory is, is that basically at some point during the production, either basically after the sets had been built and the script had been finalised, but before they started shooting, someone from the studio went, hold on a minute, no one's going to fucking know who this guy is. It's not going to work. We need to bring back something that people are going to tie into. And at that point, it was hastily rewritten for it to be Khan, which is why the whole Khan thing doesn't work and is why J.J. Abrams was forced into this weird position of going, he is Khan, he's not Khan, he is it. And, mm. and that's kind of why it didn't work. And it's a shame because actually I think if you'd have, if they'd have done exactly what we've talked about mm. uh, sort of here and actually, you know, maybe gone down a bit of a different route and, and, and gone for a little known character and maybe, you know, gone down the darker, flesh things out route, could have been a good sequel as it is Star Trek Into Darkness. Shit. One of the other most annoying things about uh, Into Darkness when the Spock does his mighty Khan shout <laughs> Khan can't hear him. No. Why is he doing that? No, because it's not there, it's, mate. It's, it's all just, just on top it's of it's a pastiche. It's all it's all a, it, space. It's all enough to pastiche. It, is li- yeah. it literally is just yeah. Just it's the audience expect it. Yeah. We have to do this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have. I mean, that's what? why I loved. I really liked Beyond because it just actually went against a lot of audience expectations. I didn't yes. like Beyond them. I didn't. I oh, didn't like I Darkness much at all. I didn't like Beyond much. Beyond is very Star Trek. I like Beyond a lot. Beyond Beyond feels like a a big feature length episode. Yeah, like the plot is very kind of plot of the weeky type thing yeah, yeah definitely they, but it's and they, got a lot they, of fun behind it they jumped the shark with the uh, with this, the, the beastie boys oh bit. no I loved that <laughs> that made me so happy it's Abrams there's gonna be beastie boys somewhere. it isn't it's um, it's the guy that directs Fast and Furious yeah. Yeah, oh right amazing. I see what you mean right in terms of sorry yeah. sorry Jack that was me correcting you and that actually you I didn't right. need to yeah. but yeah Justin Lin there we go so uh Alec What's another fantastic sequel that you're a big fan of? I'm going to go with uh, another uh, Jim Cameron sequel, which is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Oh, yes. my God, I'd never have yeah. guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> One of my all-time favourite films. Um, a Terminator 2 is a, so much of a bigger movie than the first Terminator. Mm-hmm. It's crazy because you had this ultra-low-budget movie versus like the first movie that went over $100 million in terms of budget, wow. I think. Mm-hmm. But what I really like, and the thing that people forget about it, of course, is that it really plays with the formula because it's 45 minutes before we realise that Arnold Schwarzenegger is the good guy. (laughs) But again, it just, as well as being bigger, as well as having bigger set pieces and insane visual effects and a great new villain, it goes deeper into the character. And I really like, Terminator 2 is a great film because it goes, there is consequences to what happened in the first film. So it's not, hey, here we are seven years later and here's Sarah Connor, but now she's got a ponytail. It's, <laughs> here we are, and Sarah Connor is a completely different character because obviously, yeah. because she found out that the fucking world was going to end <laughs> and her son is basically future Jesus. <laughs> it's like, of course, she, you know, the, the, it makes so much sense, but at the same time, to do that takes a a mind from from a writing perspective to you have to have a bit of vision there and I, th- I think Terminator 2's got vision by the fucking boatload and I love that movie dearly 
<laughs> a little too much, some would say. Yeah, how many times? Uh, tell us a little bit, Alec, about how many times. I, you've I think I've it. seen it in the three figures. When I was fourteen years old, I once watched it on repeat for a three-day bank holiday weekend. Yes. <laughs> Until um, your penis was raw and you couldn't wank anymore. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Kept going. Pretty Kept much. Going. That is that is pretty much all you like. If you want, if you want to understand Alec, that that story is basically fourteen-year-old dry heaving and crying. <laughs> yeah. <in his> <laughs> 72 hours of Terminator 2 on repeat. Yeah, exactly. Stuart, what was a fantastic sequel that was deserves a shout-out? Well, my runner-up is Adam's Family Values Ooh. from 1993. Oh, sequel, of course, to the Adam's Family movie based on the <coughs> older comic strips. And it's one of the sequels that's almost universally regarded as better than the first. Mm. Um, I think the first is very underrated as a comedy. Mm. I mean, it's, mm. it sits at 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Adam's yeah exactly Adam's family values at 78% okay um again which I think was underrate that as well but one of my favorite things is if you read a synopsis of the film it sounds awful it sounds like a re- it sounds like a total retread of the first right oh uncle fester he's like a woman comes along and he turns against the family and you know that's the first film but it plays out very very differently it's also still incredibly witty and funny it has some fantastic one liners in it mm-hmm. and really clever throwaway lines which are bloody hilarious but uh, they go to a, a lot of a set in a summer camp isn't it that is correct yeah. yes mm-hmm. there are basically three plot threads uh, one is that the Adamses are having a baby, baby Pubert, uh, which is the best a- name for a baby. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who even has his father's moustache, and that's announced by Morticia, literally just going, "Gomez, I'm having- going to have a baby right now," yeah. and literally just gives birth, <laughs> and away they go. Because of course, in the Adams universe sort of misery is happiness and everything is reversed mm-hmm. in a sort of bizarre gothic way also one of the greatest one lines i think ever is uh made around a pubert there where they're all looking at him and cooing at him in his cot and gomez says oh he has my father's eyes and oh, Morticia yeah. says yeah take those out of his mouth um, <laughs> the second plot thread the one that sort of uh, pushes these plot along so to speak is uh, psycho nanny jones cusack who's brought on board to look after the baby and she's an Utterly unfazed, complete maniac. She's so great in that show. So it's just nothing worries her. Um, She Mm. just goes straight in, but also realizes that she can woo Fester, get him away from the family, and get all the money by killing him. But of course, Fester is virtually indestructible. (laughs) When she gives him a massive package with a bomb in it, he opens it up and says, Oh, you got me a bomb! (laughs) He likes bombs. He's not going to kill him, you know. And the third plot thread, which is the most inconsequential, but equally probably the funniest uh, overall, is Wednesday and Pugsley at a summer camp (laughs) run by very, very preppy people. And that's always the bit I remember. Absolutely. It's just a really cathartic destruction of the conformists running this place as you get to see them ultimately literally burn the place to the ground the only weakness is it's very much Wednesday's gig and Pugsley is kind of a bit of a spare part in that film but uh, yeah it's a beautiful macabre and hilarious film I think it's such an underrated comedy Um, and there is an awful third installment where they had to replace a lot of the cast because it was Rail Hooley is dead yeah Tim Curry and Daryl Hannah I believe Mm. well I say it's awful I've never seen it but I've also never heard anyone say anything much good no, about it so great. it's a shame ripe for sequelizing yep oh he gets it he's, yeah. <laughs> he's a canny oh, like that him ma'am yeah. <laughs> so my runner up is Toy Story 3 oh yes um, choice uh, good <clears throat> that uh, trilogy that escalates Toy yeah. Story 3 and I yeah like I mean I could probably equally have picked Toy Story 2 but I think mm. um, as a 
as an end to the trilogy. And although there are rumours that there's you, a Toy Story fourth 4. one yeah, that in does the not need thing, to happen. It's such a perfect end to the to yeah. to the story. It takes I, one of the things that I love about Toy Story when you look at it is it takes these really common fears for kids of like abandonment mm. and what happens as you get older and it, it it uses them in a really interesting way by putting them on toys which are also things that are going to worry about being lost being thrown away you know and and what happens as the kids that are playing with them get older yeah. and this film just ramps those up to 11 uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, the the, the, the uh, time jump that it does from the kind of the previous films is so well handled, um, makes complete sense. And it's, you know, you have that wonderful uh, opening fantasy sequence where it's Andy oh, playing yeah, with them. Yeah. Uh, I can remember seeing it in the cinema and the moment where they drop the barrel of monkeys and it goes off like a nuke. Yeah. Just laughing myself silly in the cinema. Yeah, and then you get the, the terrific prison break sequence that, that that sort of takes what they did in the first film with the with the kind of the misfit mutant toys and then and then expands on mm-hmm. that and and takes it up a, a whole new level and then of course the 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 ending where they're in the incinerator and it, it makes the bold choice of you know i remember reading at the time that you know if you looked at if you made that film by a, a different studio if it was dreamworks who had to tackle that mm that sequence would be filled of the, with the characters saying lots of their, you know, proclaiming their emotions in very obvious ways. Right, yeah, yeah. And Toy Story doesn't do that. Yeah. In that sequence, all it is is them just looking at each other and holding their hand, uh, holding hands with each other, and it carries on for that little bit too long that you yeah. you start to actually... I can remember sitting there and genuinely, because you forget about how... It gets they're gonna, the film. <laughs> how they're going to get rescued. You've kind of... it's progressed to such an uh, an extent that you've forgotten about the characters who end up coming in and, and helping them out and and you just sit there and you think my god are they going to go really dark with this mm, yeah and they don't but you know but the fact god, that their it... toys are willing to accept death is yes. such a <laughs> yeah to put in a family film is a bold thing to do yeah. it's very I remember seeing an amazing YouTube video where someone edited the end of the film off and basically showed it to his parents and ended it at the point <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and just, it is the most wicked. And she's just like, and it just ends, and then he's just he's edited it beautifully, so it, it fades to black in the credits roll. And oh, please tell me and, that like Randy Newman's just yeah, playing over yeah, the credits, yeah, 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 like yeah. nothing. And, yeah. and she was just like, what? They, yeah, yeah. And it, it's just, and it's that thing that actually they could have done. Like it would have been the dark. I mean, I was yeah, in oh, floods of tears. That's in that. the oh, yeah. And then, and then, um, you know, and then you get that lovely ending where you see yeah. the toys being passed on, mm. and you know, floods of tears again because it's such a beautiful end to the series mm. um and yeah for me it like matt says it's one of those series where it just manages that each film actually gets mm. better and better mm. yeah i'm gonna kind of bounce off of tim's early suggestion of x-men 2 and go for the a similar kind of era in the superhero movies and talk about spider-man 2 directed mm. by sam remy yeah. not amazing spider-man 2 oh <laughs> never in a million oh. fucking years yes i think it's all right i mean you know no. dubstep yeah. Dubstep uh, Jamie Foxx, no? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Speaking of Jamie Foxx, the villain in Spider-Man 2, Alfred Molina, is yeah. a fucking genius. This version of Otto Octavius in Spider-Man 2 is just fantastic. And he brings so much complexity and so much sympathy to a character that is just 
a guy with robot octopus <laughs> arms. He's so silly and so comic yeah. booky, but he brings such gravitas and the tragic story of him like, I want to better the world, I want to do this, and then it all goes horribly wrong and he's kind of yep. driven insane. It works so well. And I think it's Maguire's strongest performance as Spider-Man by far in the mm. trilogy. And he brings his chemistry with Dunst and with Melina and kind of bouncing off of those two. It takes it to a more kind of personal thing and allows... Raimi and the cast to explore Peter Parker more so than Mm Spider-Man, which is something that I don't think many of the other Spider-Man films get right. Spider-Man 3 makes the problem where you introduce way too many fucking characters and it all goes completely crazy, as as I'm sure we all know. (laughs) Spider-Man 2 keeps it small, you've got Doctor Octopus, and it it kind of hints at the whole Harry Osborn thing and plays really well with Peter and Harry's relationship as well, which is kind of my favourite thing about the Raimi trilogy is the harry peter dynamic and i think the chemistry that Maguire and franco have is absolutely fantastic Mm. and yeah i can't believe they fucked up so badly in (laughs) spider-man 3 but spider-man 2 still kind of sets the bar for superhero movies for me Mm. in a lot of ways it's in my top three superhero films of all time Mm. period one of the great superhero action sequences of the the fight on the train train, the train train the the action scenes across that whole film are fantastic Mm. The first one really doesn't hold up. I recently watched it with the Super 8-Bit Power Hour guys. Yeah, we oh, did. God, we won- Tom and I watched it together. We did uh, Talking Over Movies. Mm. And it's not great. There's lots oh. of weird awkwardness and dodgy yeah. effects. Yeah. And Kirsten Dunst is terrible. And Tobey Maguire Except is for that terrible. one scene. Yeah. And then, and then Spider-Man 2 kind of really redeems it. And I, I recently rewatched it in preparation for this for this episode. And it really holds up. The effects... Like the the octopus arms look surprisingly good considering yeah. they're mm. so old. At this I point. I love the um. Th- there's a sequence there that, like when the octopus arms first emerge that is mm. just pure Evil Dead yeah. as well. Oh Absolutely. god, he really yeah, yeah. draws on that horror. It's thing so Raimi. It, yeah, just <laughs> That's works. So Raimi works so well. <laughs> also led to one of the great. Video games of like the PS2 oh, God, era, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, well, we I had a discussion with the uh, the other Cheeseman people the other day about um, music and films and such, and how Elfman dropped the ball on Age of Ultron, and Elfman dropped the ball again on Age of um, on, sorry, on Justice League. Uh, but his Spider Two score is so fucking mm, good. It's, it's so good. really. I would say his Spider Man Two score is better than his Batman score because it's so triumphant and so just draws you in. And the moment where you've been like most. Um, uh, superhero films cock teasy with the idea of oh, oh, she almost found out who he was and he turns around without his mask on and uh, Dunst does that but she takes a half breath mm. and realises everything and the music swings like this is fucking good cinema yes. I was like 18 years old yes mm. <laughs> I think it, it captures the heart of Spider-Man because he's a character that is should be so relatable to the audience and that's mm. the thing that is lost a lot of times in mm. in other adaptations of the character and particularly the score brings that emotional weight yeah, to completely. what Maguire and Dunst and Franco and Melina are bringing to those characters and it all kind of culminates in just this perfect mm-hmm. isolated little story that is a perfect capture of Spider-Man as a character I think Tom so over uh, to you with the web yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks Jack it's raining um, Apes, apes, shit, fried shit, and apes. Um, Apes and gills. So I'm going to go with probably what's going to be the most recent uh, sort of film that we're going to talk about. I'm going to go with Blade Runner 2049. Ooh. So what? What's kind of? I mean. Just briefly, like Blade Runner is one of my uh, my other favorite films of all time. Same here. It's 
hugely influential in terms of certainly visually for me as a cinematographer it's one of the things that sort of one of the, one of my proudest moments recently was I'd, I showed my my partner Blade Runner for the first time and she was like oh some of that looks a little bit like uh, stuff you shoot and I was just like oh my god the compliment you've just paid me there is uh, is, is, is art pretty, boner yeah art boner exactly um, so uh, but basically I originally watched it because of the Harrison Ford connection I was like oh it's a sci-fi film that has Harrison Ford and obviously it's not at all like Star Wars in the slightest mm. and what's really interesting something that we talked about and actually I think we've alluded about on the show multiple times um, is the fact that actually it kind of feels like something we'd pitch Absolutely, and, I, and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to say that when, when, when it was in production we and we heard about it, it was like oh that sounds like something we'd sequelize and actually it turned out to be really really amazing proves it, that we're right at everything yeah <laughs> it, it's it's so it's kind of weird in that in that it's it's it has Denny v, I always pronounce his name wrong but it's Denny Villeneuve Vill, Denis Villeneuve Den, yeah. Denis Villeneuve as director and he is I think he's going to, especially after this film, he's going to go down as one of the greatest directors of his generation. I would argue he hasn't made a bad film. No. Um, I agree with that, yeah. yeah. Pri- um, Prisoners uh, and Sicario are just phenomenal pieces of filmmaking. If you've not seen them, you need to go and watch them. Arrival, um, obviously, again, if is in an again, incredible film. All of them deal with... In very in- interesting themes and a far a, a, a far from just being straight you know Sicario could have easily just been a straight action film and actually it's the 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 way that it uh, kind of looks in the the drug trade and the characterization is incredible Arrival does the same thing and then this this kind of does the same thing with the Blade Runner universe pairing again the same with Sicario him with my absolute favorite man in the world Roger Deakins hey. um, I, the the Deke he is I mean if you don't know who Roger Deakins is uh, you clearly you haven't, haven't you, been listening you to this. You you're not a Tom Martin fan. You're not, you're not a Tom Martin fan, but he is <laughs> the, probably basically the greatest cinematographer working in the world right I think now. That's completely fair. And he absolutely, like, I cannot emphasize enough, absolutely knocks this out of the ballpark. Like, it looks insane. I was lucky enough to see this on a massive 4K screen um, in Leicester Square, and it is just, it, 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 it looks like nothing I've ever seen, and that, that's saying a lot. The first film was stunning cinematography with uh Jordan Cronenworth and and this is com- and this is then brings me to something that's really interesting about it is it's completely different to the first blade runner in that the first blade runner was anamorphic and very dirty and gritty and grungy this is super crisp super clean non-anamorphic and it still and it kind of does what the whole film as a whole does it takes on what the best parts of the original blade runner was and then kind of evolves them and grows them and expands the universe in a way that's that's really interesting. And the thing that I think is is kind of what's really great about it is I have to be very careful because some of the sequelizers haven't seen it, so I have to right. kind of yeah, I kind of have to. Some of the listeners haven't seen it. As well. Yeah, and some of the listeners might have seen it. Is that your it, problem? It listeners? is. Yeah, exactly. If you've not seen it, go and see it on the biggest screen possible. Is that it? It's a. It's like a lot of other. It's a lot like a lot of other of uh, of, of his of Denis Villeneuve's work. Is that it's very, it's very complex, and it and, I, and this sounds kind of like a cliche, but it's very complex. It's very deep. It deals with some really interesting issues. Uh, some of which were present in the original film, some of which were hinted at in the original film. So things like what it means to be an authentic human. And it, it deals with them. It takes on the ideas that were presented in the original film and kind of 
grows upon them and also it also kind of takes on a lot of what's happened in the reality today and fuses that with the dystopian ideals of the 1982 original um and it's also a film and this is something i have to be very careful about it's a film that like the original i think is going to be a bit of a grower it is not it is not a narratively satisfying film but it is an, 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 an intensely emotionally satisfying film and it is unafraid to do that and yeah. it's, it's now rub a lot of people the wrong way it, it is it is it, it i can't yeah i can't really talk about that bit so we can't do that mm. other stuff that is awesome and again i have to be very careful with this it it brings back harrison ford but it does a very similar thing to The Force Awakens does where, and I'm not talking about whether he dies or not, I'm talking about the fact that the film doesn't hinge on his presence. And that is a credit both Mm -hmm. to the direction of Villeneuve and also the acting of everyone else in it. Ryan Gosling I'm a huge fan of, but he is fucking great in this film. And his supporting cast and and characters are great. And the last thing I'll say is that similarly, it it could be... so hard to, for example, you know, the visuals I've talked about, I've talked about the direction, the thematics, the music was such an, an huge part of the original Blade Runner and it potentially would be almost impossible to, to do it justice. And actually, I was a little bit kind of nervous when they replaced, um, I get his name wrong, it's Joe, Van Joe, Joe, no, it's Joe, Johan, oh. basically the guy that Villeneuve usually works with yeah. on Sicario, they replaced him with Hans Zimmer and I was I a bit like, Hans Zimmer until the end of the film, I thought, oh fuck, they did get rid of Well, it's kind of technically, my understanding is it's technically not they were both Hans Zimmer. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's, it's basically Hans Zimmer's doing this thing at the moment where he's basically writing a bit of music giving it to another composer they're kind of composing it and then he comes back and kind of goes yeah that's great He's got I'll put my name of, on it yeah an army people um, and, and it's, how, um, it's, it's Benjamin Wallenfish yeah. I think does most of this yeah, but anyway so basically yeah. the score is phenomenal it really really again takes elements of the original in some cases actually directly referencing it and then just takes it to new and exciting places so basically a sequel that probably didn't need to be made but one that I'm really glad it has been because it, it's really really good um, yeah I'll finish us off uh, you yeah, always please do, do. Yeah, please do as the penguin as I always do <clears throat> right so to Batman draw on forever. <laughs> to take a, a page out of Jack Chambers book of oh. producing two films instead of one Technically speaking, there's a reason for <laughs> You just went very London there as well. Technically, Technically speaking, lads, uh, there's a reason. There's for this. a reason this is going to be two films. It's not what you think. No, <laughs> pirates two and pirates three. Yeah, <laughs> I think pirates they're four nice... and pirates five. <laughs> <laughs> I know we, I know we said bad things about the Matrix Reloaded, but Revolution <laughs> is where it's fucking at. <laughs> so the Mad Max films. There are currently four of them, and I would argue. They're all very fucking good. Like, I would really agree. fucking good. I would agree. Uh, they only dip slightly because of odd uh, decisions made. But I stand by the fact that I watch all those films and love the fuck out of all of them. Fury Road is a weird one because, obviously, it's about best sequels. It's not really a sequel. It's kind of a soft reboot. That's is it kind a of a prequel? Sequ- is it a soft yeah, reboot? Yeah, I mean, we it, know? there are bits that allude to the fact that it does have a lot of nods towards events uh, in, in the first film and such. And, I mean... In in Road Warrior, his car is destroyed, but he has it somehow in the fourth one, and then they sort of redact it. They say, "Oh, he found another one." It's like, right? So, is this a sequel or not? Where does it take place in the story? What's going on? So, in the end, I'm going to talk about Fury Road in the sense that Fury Road is an amazing fucking film. It came back after a hiatus um, from the Mad Max franchise and produced something that shouldn't work. I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, "Fuck off! This will be awful. This is going to be such shit." Oh, Happy Feet. 
God damn it, Miller. <laughs> anyway, and I watched it and thought, this is spectacular yeah. cinema. Yeah. This is amazing. And I was very angry because I thought, this is such a strong message. It's so colourful as an apocalypse palette where we're getting so many, you know, uh, grey, dark things. It's And the, the messages and the themes are so fucking rich. The characters are great. Hardy is like he's always sort of well. Hardy's great in it in a, in a, to a degree, but it's more of a sense that Max becomes a bystander, just witnessing what happens to be going on in the wasteland. He just walks up and says, "That's a bit strange," and leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which is that means he's just this guy, who's just a wanderer who just sees yeah. different stuff because it's not really his story. And I love that. And then I got really angry, thinking, "Oh fuck." All the wah, 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 wah man babies are going to say, it's about women. Oh, Mad Max have turned a, a real manly series yeah. into a bunch of birds. And that's of, exactly what the bunch of twats did. Yeah. They did. And then I was on top of that. I was worried. I thought, well, this is this is going to what we're like worried about um, the way the Planet of the Apes might sort of mm. fade away. I thought no one's going to appreciate this for what it is and the importance of what it is. And then thankfully got nominated for ten fucking Oscars and won mm. six of them. And yes. I'm like, this is insane. This is exactly and, and and you know, um, it, it's just a exceptional film. But that's kind of not what I'm going to be talking about. The actual film I'm highlighting, for the actual sense that it's an actual sequel, is 1981's Mad Max 2, or as it's known in the States, The Road Warrior. That film is so arguably important for the dystopian future genre. Absolutely. It defines so much. And in terms of um, what Miller did in Australia, no one knew what was happening in the sense of like... (laughs) Even on the cast and crew, there are so many little clips. There's, a, there's an old sort of 80s reel to sort of get the Americans involved in film. Like, and I think it's like, this is a place in Australia where the, whatever is happening, you know, the last wilderness or whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. What, what are they talking about? And they literally just show a few clips of them making the film. A stunt is heavily prepared with the most technologically advanced machinery, whatever it is cardboard boxes <laughs> and then they say the stunt has not gone that's what they wanted it to it's like what a man will be yeah, the ambulance is taking away it's the smoothest ride he's had on the entire film <laughs> it's like what the fuck but because Mad Max did not work they they, re, they redubbed it for the Americans with American accents stupid fucking yeah, idea a, oh the dub um, is terrible it's terrible and because the original Australian cut is, is great, and I, lo- I do genuinely love Mad Max. But the thing about Mad Max and the Road Warrior that's interesting to me is it has a superhero thing. Well, I mean, one of the films that we could have easily talked about is a lot of the Marvel films because what people you thought of as superhero film was, well, clearly the best film is the origin, how they become the character. No, that is interesting, but mostly too focused on. It's what they do with it next. The reason why X Men Two and Spider Man Two exactly the Captain Dark Knight yeah Dark Knight um, Winter, Winter Soldier, Soldier. Yeah, exactly. it's when you yeah. go with the story and the same thing like how Max becomes Max is interesting the universe there is is interesting what happens after that where he becomes this barren wanderer and has I think like fifteen lines in the entire film yeah it's amazing. Yeah. Can I just also point out that they did throw in a fucking apocalypse between one and two, <laughs> yes. which does. James yeah, the it was the idea. Yeah, the first idea, one's kind of mid-apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the world's going crazy. Oil's very expensive. To everything is fucked. Yeah. Um, no, it was it was crazy, and there the, the was um, more of a link to the first one initially. So, for example, Lord Humong- Humongous or Humongous um, was initially going to be Jim Goose, um, Max's partner. There's so many little nods to it's going to be him, and he's just been in the desert going crazy and all you know burned up and stuff. But they obviously drop that as an idea and in Australia they just released it as Mad Max 2 and it starts in the cut that most people are familiar with you have the flashback footage of Max's life where he loses his wife right, and yeah, yeah. run over in the baby and things like that and all that stuff is in there but 
just the the narrative structure of the whole thing the fact that it's um told from the feral kids perspective the fact that for a long time max is really just an asshole he's not a nice character he doesn't actually altruistically help anyone until the last five minutes he's in it for himself until he says like you know I don't think at any point he sort of says, I'm a good guy in this film now. Everyone's a shit. Which is a thread they carry on in Fury Road. Oh, well, completely. For sure. Completely. That's why it feels like the different... Because I think three takes a very different turn. But yes, definitely. This one is very much uh, an interesting turn, that one. Um, but yeah, the way it's made... And again, the, the, the kind of filmmaking is that the lack of visual effects, the fact it's all in cam, it's so dangerous. And it, most of it had never been attempted before. They, the guy who was doing... The, there's a, a tanker that turns over in this like 15 minutes chase sequence which of course he eventually extended to a Mad Max 4 style the whole thing's chase sequence the whole film <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the chase sequence is, is, was so dangerous flipping this tanker and they had no idea what was going to happen that they told the stunt driver don't eat for 24 hours before because we guarantee you'll be in fucking hospital <laughs> thankfully it was fine <laughs> but there was, it was like no we're going to probably have to operate on you and, and again there's a, on, a car got clipped and the, stu- the head of the stunt team he got his legs like fucked in a car it's just insane and for a film it's so beautiful in that it's so ridiculous in terms of its characters so ridiculous and so australian so universally understandable as that she's this these 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 caricature characters just yeah having a crazy time i I do often wonder with that film whether they were reading 2000 ad though because and i think 2000 ad then plays off of uh road Mm. warriors so much as it goes Mm. on but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Cursed Earth Saga had happened at that point, or was happening. The amount of stuff that it inspired, I mean, you got like Fist of the North Star in Japan, you got technically Cameron has listed this as one of those Terminator yeah. influence. I mean, so much stuff draws on this. I mean, again, Fallout is just Mad mm. Max the game, basically. But yeah, it, it's a really important action film and a really, really strong one, yeah. Not to keep dragging us back to Fury Road, but I saw a, an interesting quote by... I'm pretty sure it was Steven Soderbergh oh. Oh. recently where he said, like, uh, you know, someone was asking him, you know, do you feel you've got to a, uh, a place in your career where you're, you know, you've learned everything you can? And he was like, no, because I, I look at something like Mad Max Fury Road and A, I don't know how they're still not <laughs> shooting that film. Yeah. And B, I don't know how everyone involved in it hasn't died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, it is a just a tour de force of I remember watching the the so basically uh, it's edited by his wife who's never had to edit an action film never, be- yeah. before and essentially the only reason that it works um, is essentially it breaks a lot of editing conventions because the, the sh- average shot length is something like less than half a second mm. the only reason it works and there was a great bit of behind the scenes footage I saw and essentially you've got oh. you've got the guy going <laughs> Put the crosshairs on Charlie's face. Put the crosshairs on the gun. And essentially, they just taped like you have a crosshair often on a camera. Mm. And essentially, anything that's important in the shot has to be middle. So essentially, your your eye doesn't have to do what's called eye trace, and essentially doesn't have to scan the frame. So essentially, you can just lock your eye to the middle of this frame. It will show it, and it means they can cut it at this like insane, ridiculous pace. Mm. It's just as as Sonbo says, like it shouldn't. Like exist, like it just, it, it, it's it, yeah. And how that, like, how they didn't die is just yeah. insane. I, I was saying on Twitter the other day that the universe where we got George Miller's Justice League, oh. they probably Trump didn't get elected and Brexit didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Like it improved. It's We're in the dark that. time. <laughs> we are. I've been saying that for the last eighteen months. I'm yeah. sadly are. Good things can happen in the darkest timeline, but, you know, yeah, we're in the darkest timeline. Sequelizers is a thing. That's yeah, nice. yeah, that's true. Yeah. But then, to be fair, sequelizers is only a thing because cinema's shit. Because we're fixing times. bad things. Yeah. <laughs> Those bad things didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God damn it. 
So that wraps up our best sequels episode. Quite the diversion from our usual format. Mm. I guess we need to plug our Twitters and stuff like oh, that. Oh, shit, yeah. Mm. Matthew Stogden, how can people follow you on the internet? If you'd like to follow me and... Uh, I don't know if I can do that for. You go to Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff and search Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z, and you can see my film reviews at theredrighthand.co.uk. Been very busy, that's why they've been a bit uh, sluggish of late, but they're picking up. And filmmaking stuff, cheesemint.com. I think that's probably everything I need to cover, so I'll move on to whoever's next. Alec Plowman. <gasps> AlecPlowman.com. That's my website. You can it's check totally up to date, guys. Is it up to date? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. Oh, he died apparently. So I know. It's, okay. Yeah, that's the running joke, Alec. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he nervously shuffles around, going, "Shit, I didn't press publish." Yeah, it's time of recording. You can follow me on the Twitters. That's Alec underscore Plowman. Drop me a message. I will respond. Please, please drop him a message. Wow. Please, he really wants some social media interaction. I'm going to tweet you now. <laughs> yeah, Stuart Ashen, how can people follow you on the interwebs? A S H E N S Ashens. Just stick that in your Google box. <laughs> Tim Matum, how can people follow you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am at trivia underscore lad, and I also have a blog- blogging project that I do with a friend that you can find at timplusalex.com. We just talk about pop culture and music and film and stuff like that, comics. So, um, yeah, check that out. Mr. Tom Martin, over to you, sir. If you'd like to view the films, what I make when I do filmmaking, you can visit my company's website, which is www.weareforward.uk. We now have a Birmingham office. Ho oh, hey. ho! So, uh, if you'd like to uh, come any and visit Brummy us, listeners, hang out. Any Brummy listeners want to come and hang out at the Custard Factory? Yes, that is genuinely what the office <laughs> building is called. Um, I think that's the name of your sex den. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Last last time I got asked to hang out at the Custard Factory, I woke up. Two days later, custard, with, a very, it wasn't with a very sore person, you woke up lacking Ryan my Singer's spare bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right now. He's been. It's, it's, it's fine. He's it's already indicted. Um, <laughs> it's January. He's in prison. So, uh, so, so you can you can do that if you'd like to uh, follow us on social media. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at Made by Forward. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I sometimes post pretty pictures of like scenery and architecture and other things that take my fancy. Uh, I'm at Tom Martin underscore eighty nine. And also, I'll take this opportunity to say thanks for listening, guys. I'm going to miss you all. Aww. Aww. We're going to miss you, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Good night, so. Mister Tom. Well, what too. On that note, you can follow me at JLW Chambers on basically everything. I'm like Ashens, but not quite as famous. And, of course, sequelizers at gmail.com is the email address you can send all your complaints and questions to. At sequelizers on Twitter, I'm, Facebook. I genuinely expect someone to say, Instagram. You Star Wars for me. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting Bastards. for... Yeah, I hate all of these movies because we usually get, oh, I really like those terrible yep. films you're talking about. We're Toy go, Story 3 was a travesty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really hoping the woman I will that put watched... put money on, yeah. we get somebody who hates Toy somebody Story 3. Somebody asked us to sequelise Toy Story 2. We've already oh, had the request. Yes. Oh, yeah. Those guys yeah. can go that suck a fuck. I had a full conversation list. with that guy. And I'm like, are you kidding? And he was like, no, no, no I think it's, it doesn't quite live up to the first time. I'm like, are you mental? <laughs> it's arguably the best of the trilogy. So there's a wrap on season two. Thank you, Tom. You've been a fantastic contributor, Thank a fantastic you. podcaster. And of course, 
a noble street shark. Yeah. Street sharks. Street sharks to the end. Street yeah. sharks for life, and everybody's street doing the, we take the fin thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And of course, Tom Martin, you have sequelized. Hey. Oh, I have sequelized. <laughs> the sequelizers will be back soon with season three, beginning with Terminator 3. Oh. The musical accompaniment of Plowshirts. <laughs> Going. <laughs> That's the problem. That's because you were hurting my ears. <laughs> oh! Awkward. Says the YouTuber to the singer. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.